You are listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. Beginning May 2nd, a new adventure begins in the world of Strangers and Pilgrims. A fast-paced story of the continuing battle between light against dark and learning about the past will help fight against the shadows of the future. Over a decade has passed, since the FTL ship has returned and John Vega and Nicolay Dan have once again joined the effort known now as the Union of Light, to fight the newly formed Paganic Imperium. On the world of Sulia, help is needed. The Union must help save the people of the city of Galgani from being tortured and killed because of their beliefs. They must flee their city and begin an exodus across the stars. But the Empire will not let them go that easily, for they are the chosen people of the Lord of Light. But first they must find a fleet of their own. Thermani Electric escaped with the Bathshi from the Shadow World and is now the Emperor of the Imperium. The only person he trusts, Sashiana, makes her way back with the others only to question her own soul. As he remembers his own past and hearing of Sashiana's return, he is encouraged that now he can take his place in the galaxy. Look for Into Shadows Fire, the new book coming out May 2nd at your favorite online bookstore. The greatest story ever told. Presented by the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. Tonight we present The Figure at the Door, a drama based on a teaching from the greatest life ever lived. In the town of Gabara in Galilee, two men stand watch a safe distance away from a great house. Their eyes are fixed on the door of that house, and suddenly it is opened. A face peers out, and then the door is shut instantly. One of the two watching men says to the other, There, Malachi. You see? Yes, sir. It was Simeon's servant who opened the door and peered out. Exactly. And did you notice how furtively it was done? Yes, I noticed that. Good. That was all I wanted. Someone else to watch and see and confirm my feeling about this thing. Now come. We shall go back to the marketplace. Yes, Come along. Sir, if I might ask, why did you take me from my work to have me stand there and watch Simeon's house with you? Because I had to make sure. Now that I am sure, the whole thing is quite clear to me. What thing? You couldn't figure it out, could you? But I have. What, sir? It occurred to me almost two weeks ago. That's the day the caravan arrived from Egypt. Usually, Simeon would be down there in the marketplace trying to buy the best of everything, bidding against me. But he wasn't. I mocked that fact. Then I began watching and thinking. I haven't seen Simeon since then. Have you? No, sir. Well, then I asked myself, why? Why is he never seen anymore? You know as well as I that Simeon is the kind of man who likes to strut in public. Who likes to appear in better garments than those I wear. It's true he's vain. True, too, that he vies with you for public attention and favor. Well, but... that makes the mystery all the more baffling. 
Why should such a man not appear in public for two whole weeks? Perhaps he's ill, sir. Then why should his illness be kept a secret? Unless my good friend Simeon has fallen victim to leprosy. What? Yes, Malachi, I'm sure of it. I'm sure Simeon is a victim of leprosy and is hiding in his own home, cared for by his own loyal servant, so no one else will discover it. If it's true, it's too bad, sir. Too bad. I don't know about that. Sir, what do you mean? Well, once and for all, it will settle the question of who is the leading citizen in this town. Once this is known, he'll be forced to leave here and wander the roads like all the other lepers. Then only one man will be spoken of as great here in Gabara. That will be me. Sir, might I suggest... Quiet, Malachi. Let me think. Now, we can do something about Simeon. We can tell the town authorities. They drag him out. They'd expel him from the town. Yes. I'll talk to them. Please, sir, don't do it. And why not? In the first place, it might not be true. And in the second place, if it is true, then Simeon needs help, not expulsion from the town. You would say that. Too soft. That's your trouble, Malachi. At least promise me not to do it for several days. Several days? Why? What difference would it make? Sir, the thing I mention now may not seem connected with this, but it is. And I was going to speak to you about it today in any event, so now is a good time. Good time for what? Ethan, could you advance to me some of the money I shall earn in the next few weeks? An advance of money? You, Malachi? I've never heard you ask for that before. No, sir. I'm an old man. I live alone. My needs are simple, but this time I do need money. Of so... course you should have it, Malachi. Oh, thank you, sir. Great. You've aroused my curiosity. Why do you need it? Well, sir, the master will be coming here to Kabara again. It is the first time in a long time. And it would be the greatest moment of my life should he and his apostles deign to come to my house to have the evening meal, even spend the night. Surely nothing could ever happen to me that would be greater than that. I see. Malachi, tell me. This master, he seems to be gaining in popularity all the time, doesn't he? If you're trying to say, sir, that more people follow his way, yes, they do. Hmm. It's a thought. Very interesting thought. Sir? Nothing, Malachi. Nothing for you to worry about. I shall have the money, though. Yes, you shall have the money. Tomorrow. Remind me of it tomorrow, Malachi. Ethan. Huh? Oh, Malachi. Well, what is it this time? Something you've come across in the marketplace? No, sir. Just that the day is almost over and you've said nothing about what we talked of yesterday. Oh, you mean the money? Yes, sir. And the way you've been wrapped in thought all day, I don't wonder you forgot. Is something troubling you, sir? Malachi, do you believe in dreams? Dreams? Well, what do you mean? Do I believe? Can a dream mean anything? Why, oh, I know there are stories in the scriptures about dreams, Pharaoh's dreams, others. 
But could a dream of great meaning happen to me? Could it? Who knows where dreams come from? But the meaning of a dream. How does one determine that? I don't know. It was the strangest kind of dream. I was in my home. It was night. I was alone. Then there came a knock on the door. I went to answer. I called out, enter. And the door opened? No. The door didn't open. Suddenly, I could see through the door. As though it had become transparent. There stood a man there, in a long robe, covered with dust as though he'd traveled far. I could see him, but he couldn't see me. And I could see his face clearly. It was a kind face, with deep and gentle eyes. Then I saw him knock on the door again. Again I called out to him, enter. But he looked at the door and then began to walk away slowly, sorrowfully. What could such a dream mean? I, I don't know, sir. I've had dreams that come and are forgotten with the light of day. But this one, it troubled me, awoke me, had been with me all day. Well, it's no worry of yours. Now then... What were you asking? The advance of money, Ethan. Oh, oh, yes. Tell me, Malachi. Would you insist on having the master at your home? Insist? Of course not. I could only invite him to share what I have. One doesn't insist. Not with him. I didn't mean that. I mean, suppose you didn't invite him. Oh, but I must. I'm an old man. I may not be here the next time the master comes to Kabara. So that I must invite him this time, else it may never be. If it was a matter of doing him honor, could be arranged in another way. Oh, sir. Suppose that there were a great feast in my house, and the master and the apostles you spoke of were invited there. You would be there, too. You could honor him in that way. You would invite the master to your house? Why not? Think how it would enhance my standing in this town. Now that he has come to be accepted by so many. <laughs> you know, I'll even invite Simeon. Perhaps when he fails to appear, it will cause others to ask the same question I asked. Perhaps that's a way of bringing his condition to light without even saying a word to anyone. Please, sir, you don't understand. One doesn't act in that fashion toward the master. Malachi, I shall invite the master. I shall have a huge feast. Everyone will be there. You too. No, sir. Malachi. I couldn't be there. I couldn't be witness to what you proposed to do. I see. You realize, of course, that the advance of money you requested will not be forthcoming. I realize that now. However, I will not withdraw my invitation. You are still welcome to pay honor to the master at my house. At a great feast. I understand, sir. <laughs> Is there anything else you wish to have done about the feast? Ethan? Oh, what is it, my dear? I was talking about the feast, but it seems you have something else on your mind. No, 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 it's nothing. Ethan, last night as you slept, did you dream? What makes you ask that, Ruth? You called out. Not once, but several times. I... I called out? Yes, dear. You kept calling, enter, come in, the door is open. Such things as that. 
First you spoke softly, then your calls became angry and finally frantic. Uh, I see. If there's something troubling you, you could tell me. Oh, it's only a dream. I've had it once before. It means nothing. Surely, if it meant nothing, it wouldn't have disturbed you so. I tell you, it means nothing. Now, the final plans for the feast. Of food, there must be plenty. More than enough to satisfy everyone who will be here. And did you dispatch the servant to extend a special invitation to Simeon? Yes, but I wondered. Ethan, why do you invite Simeon this time? Ordinarily, you don't like to have him here. I don't understand. Because I invite him doesn't mean he'll be here. As a matter of fact, that might be just the reason I did invite him. That's a very curious thing. Ah, you see, it works even with you. Right now, this moment, you're wondering why Simeon won't be here even though I invited him. Admit it, you are. Yes. Now tell me what this is all about. You'll find out in time, my dear, in time. <laughs> yes, it's perfect. And now about the seating arrangements for the feast. Simeon shall have a place of honor close by the master. After all, the more people's eyes dwell on the empty seat, the more their minds will question why Simeon isn't here. So remember, Simeon's place shall be one on the side of the master, and I will sit on the other. Who could that? Oh, wait, I know. I dispatched a boy to the town gate to wait till the master and his friends arrived. Must be the boy. Come in, come in. Well, Reuben, did you see him? Did you... Who is this man with you, Reuben? Sir, he is one of the master's closest friends. I asked him to come with me to hear the invitation from you yourself. His name, sir, is Peter. Peter, eh? Welcome to my house. Ethan is my name. God be with you, Ethan. Now, what was it this very excited lad tried to tell me? He was so excited I could almost see his heart pounding in his chest. It's good you came. You can see for yourself that this is one of the finest homes in Gabara. Perhaps then my invitation will mean more to you. I should like to invite your master and all his apostles to feast with me here this evening. And to spend the night. It's very kind of you to invite us, sir. Wandering the country as we do, we have a high regard for warm and friendly hospitality. Ethan's house is open to all who need shelter. Thank you. Now I must go. But wait. I must have an answer from you. I shall take your invitation to the master. Have no fear of that. Then he will be here. I can only take your message to him. He shall decide. I see. Now, may I leave? Of course. Strange man. I don't know if I like him. But why? He seemed a kind man with a good, strong, honest face. Oh, it wasn't his face. It was his bearing, his attitude. I don't know. You expected that he'd bow and scrape and show you great respect for having invited the master here. Is that it? Now, Ruth, don't judge me. Just do as I say. Preparations will go forward. Even though you've had no answer yet? The master will be here. They'll all be here. Where else in this town could they be so well fed? The feast will be held, and they will be here. <laughs> yes, David, you and your wife must enjoy this evening. That's why I invited you here. It must be an evening to remember. Poor Stephen. That's right. Mingle with all the guests till the guest of honor arrives. I'll see you later. Ruth. Yes, dear. Have you been to the front door again? Yes, Ethan. No sign of the master? No sign of any of his followers? No, Ethan. Not even that one, Peter? None of them. Can't understand it. It's late. Even past the hour when I'd expected that the feast would begin. 
can tell from looking at their faces that even the guests are beginning to sense there's something wrong. Perhaps he isn't coming, Ethan. He'll be here. He must. Maybe... Maybe there's something wrong with the door. What are you saying, Ethan? I must go and see. Go and see? Come with Ethan, me to the door. You may think me mad, but it could happen. What could happen? Come and see. Yes, dear. Ethan, I'm looking at the door. What's wrong with it? I must open it to show you. Here. Well, Ethan, what's wrong? How different is the door now than it's ever been before? I... I don't know. Ethan, what is it? You're pale and fearful? I don't know how to tell you. If you can tell anyone, it should be me. Yes. Yes, dear. Last night, the same dream again. The man knocking. I bidding him to enter, and he didn't. Again, I could see him through the door as though it were transparent. And I could see him disappear. Yet last night, the dream was different. After he had gone, I went to the door. I opened it. And I found that the latch on the outside of our door was gone. Not there at all. Gone? Yes. It was as though there never had been a latch on the door. What a strange thing to dream. That's why. Well, I thought... Oh, it can't have anything to do with it. The latch is there. The other guests found it. It's foolish, very foolish. Except... Yes, dear? In the dream, after I discovered the latch was missing from the outside of the door, I ran out. I followed the figure down the street. I called to him. I asked him to return. And he turned to me and said something and walked on. What did he say? What's the trouble? I can't remember. I just can't remember. Well... We might as well go back into the main hall and wait with our guests. But if the master doesn't arrive... He must arrive. We'll wait. Ethan, the way everyone looks and whispers. It's long past mealtime. They know there's something wrong. Yes, the master won't be here. You must admit that now. Yes, I'm afraid so. It would have been so perfect. The master here and Simeon not here. Had it happened, then even Malachi would have appreciated what I wanted to do. As a matter... Wait. Malachi. What of Malachi? He isn't here, is he? No. But then would you invite a mere clerk to such a feat? I did invite him this time. And he isn't here. Nor is the master here. Wait, wait. This thing is beginning to make sense to me at last. Ruth, I'm going out. Leave a house full of guests, the great feats waiting to be served? How can you? I'm going out. I think I know where this master is. And if he is there, then Malachi will pay for this little bit of treachery. Yes, you'll pay. Please, Ethan, just because your pride is hurt, don't do anything to Malachi. He was your father's clerk and friend even before you were born. That doesn't give him the privilege of making a fool of me. I'm going to find out if my suspicions are true. And if they are... Malachi will suffer for this. Yes, friend, who... Ethan. Yes, Malachi, it's me. Why, Ethan, what are you doing here? Don't pretend you don't know. Let me in. Oh, no, Ethan, I'm afraid I can't do that. The master is here and he teaches. I shouldn't want a man as angry as you are to burst in at such a moment. Then he is here, just as I thought. 
Despite the fact that you knew I wanted him to feast at my house, you invited him here. That's the strange part, Ethan. I didn't invite him. You didn't invite him, yet he's here? How do you explain that? He came to me. He asked to eat here, to spend the night here. And I suppose you spread a lavish feast for him, quite by chance, too. Feast? We had only bread and some milk. But the master seemed quite satisfied with such a little. He came here of his own choice to eat bread and milk. When he knew I had a great feast prepared for him. I don't believe it. I give you my word. Malachi, I think you lie. Ethan, please. And not only do I think so, but I shall accuse you to your own friend, the master. I shall tell him what kind of treacherous man you Ethan, are. Ethan, you're making a great mistake. Stand aside, Malachi. Ethan, no. Don't go in there. Don't do it, please. Ethan. Master. Master, I must talk to you. Sir, please. Master's in the midst of teaching. Phew, Peter, I recognize you. Even if you don't remember me. I'm the man who invited the master to a feast at my house. I remember. But he wasn't there. He chose this place, sir. So I understand. And I want to know why. The master is not called upon to explain his actions to anyone. Save to a power greater than any on this earth. Perhaps you don't think so, but I do. Master, I don't know which one you are. I've never seen you before. But they say you prize very highly truth and virtue. And honesty and faith. Yet you have chosen to come here to the house of a man who is dishonest. In preference to coming to my house. Ethan. You shouldn't have said that. You lied to me only a moment ago, standing there at the door. But I didn't lie. I said the master asked to come here, and he did. That's right, he did. I know that, Ethan. I don't believe it. Not unless I hear it from the master. Which one is he that I may ask him for myself? There, Ethan. There is the master. Well, then, master, I... No. Ethan. What is it? No. It can't be. It can't be. Ethan, you look faint. You tremble. So what is it? You wouldn't believe me. No one would. What is it, man? No, Peter. No, Malachi. It can't be. Please, Ethan. What is it? Oh, let go of me. Let me out of here. Let me go. Ethan, wait. Ethan. Ethan, wait. Please. That's right. Wait for me. Well, Malachi, what do you want of me? Oh, Ethan, I'm glad you waited. I couldn't let you go feeling as you did. No. I'm convinced the master chose to come to your house without invitation. I know that now. Is that what made you turn pale and tremble? Made you run from my house like a guilty man? Was it so obvious? Yes, Ethan. Now, tell me. Why? Those dreams I had. The figure at the door. The figure that knocked and wouldn't enter when I invited him. That figure was the master. I knew it when I saw his face this evening. Oh. And as I looked upon the master's face, the words spoken to me in the dream all came back suddenly. I heard them as clearly as I heard them in my dream. I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will eat with him, and he with me. That's what I heard in my dream. 
And he was the figure. I see. Malachi, there was more. In the dream, there was no handle on the outside of my door. Why? Can you tell me, Malachi? I'm beginning to understand. In the dream, it was a door. But in your own self, it is your heart. Just as in the dream, the door could only be opened from within because there was no latch on the outside. So your heart cannot admit the master unless you open it to him from within yourself. The latch to a man's heart is within him. Yes. Now I know what the dream meant to tell me. I guess that word that word at all. Good night, Malachi. No, wait. You yourself said it's something which must come from within a man. And I failed that way. No man has failed till he gives up. You're not lost. What can I do? How can I open my heart to the master? By goodwill toward the master. And toward others. By overcoming hatred. By forgiving. By living a good life. In keeping with his word. I see. I only threw wide the doors of my great house to him. I tried to tempt him with lavish foods. But he chose to eat bread and milk in your house. Where there is kindness and goodwill and a benevolent spirit. He chose well, Malachi. I'm not worthy. I only meant to enhance my prestige by the master's presence. I meant, too, to do harm to Simeon. And in spite of that, you say I'm not lost? No, Ethan. There's still time and still a chance to change. You really think so? Yes. How? Some act, some good deed, some... Wait. I know. Yes, Ethan. Has something occurred to you? If I could bring myself to do it. You mean Simeon? Yes. You said yourself it's help that he needs. Not expulsion from the town. Well, I could bring him to your house, to the master. He'd find help there. That's right, Ethan. But you know how I've always hated Simeon. Then, isn't this the best time to open your soul from within? To Simeon. And to the master as well. Isn't it, Ethan? Yes, Malachi. Yes. It would be difficult for me to do it. I will. I shall go to Simeon's house now and bring him back. The master shall cure him. And me, too. You see, the door to my heart is beginning to open already. Yes, with his words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him.
You have been listening to The Figure at the Door, another episode in the greatest story ever told from the greatest life ever lived. For a Christian sci-fi with humor, adventure and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey. Travel with Jarl through the universe and several dimensions as he unearths items to help those struggling to survive on Earth during the catastrophic conclusion of the age. GraceGrows.com has more information. Read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey by Grace S. Gross. My dear prince, my poor spellbound prince, today is the day I take you to your true kingdom, away from this world of distant dreams and fantasy. Today you will join me in my world, where I will care for you, nurture you, prepare you for your true destiny. You will fear for nothing. You will want for nothing. For you will hear only what I tell you and act only as I decree. It's all for the best, my precious and valiant knight. For our future together, where I will reign... <laughs> that is to say, we will reign victorious. Now, come, my prince. Come. <laughs> Hello, I'm Douglas Gresham, your host for Focus on the Family Radio Theatre. C.S. Lewis, or Jack as his friends knew him, spent most of his life teaching and writing in Oxford. He shared a house called The Kilns with his brother Warren. In the 50s, Jack met my mother, Joy Davidman, and they were married, and my brother and I became part of the family at The Kilns. One of the mainstays at the house was Fred Paxford, who served as a handyman, gardener and occasional cook for over 30 years. Everyone else called him Paxford, but he and I became friends, and I was allowed the single honour of calling him Fred. Fred was an Oxfordshire countryman through and through. He knew the ways of animals and plants better than anyone, and he knew what it was to be a young boy, which may be why we became such close friends. He was a simple and earthy man, who might be called a cheerful, eternal pessimist. If you said good morning to him, he might reply, Ah, looks like rain afore lunch, though, if it don't snow or ail, that is. <laughs> I mention him now because Fred was the inspiration for one of Narnia's best-loved characters, Puddleglum, in The Silver Chair, the story you're about to hear. The story itself was originally called The Wild Wastelands, but the publisher wanted something else, so it became consecutively Knights Under Narnia, Gnomes Under Narnia, News Under Narnia, 
and then finally, the silver chair. Hmm. If you remember the ending to The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, then you may recognize how this story seems to begin where it left off, with Eustace in a strange country that seems to belong only to Aslan. Only now, Eustace is with his friend Jill, and they have to be sent to Narnia in one of the strangest ways found in any of the seven books. So without further delay, Focus on the Family Radio Theatre presents The Silver Chair. It was a dull autumn day, and Jill Pole was crying behind the gym. She was crying because they'd been bullying her. This is not going to be a school story, so I shall say as little as possible about Jill's school, which is not a pleasant subject. It was co-educational, a school for both boys and girls, or what used to be called a mixed school, though some said it was not nearly so mixed as the minds of the people who ran it. These people had the idea that boys and girls should be allowed to do what they liked, and unfortunately, what 10 or 15 of the biggest boys and girls liked best was bullying others. The headmistress at an ordinary school would have found out and put a stop to it, or the bullies would have been expelled or punished. But the headmistress at this school said they were interesting psychological cases and talked to the bullies for hours. And if you knew the right sort of things to say to the headmistress, the main result was that you became rather a favourite than otherwise. And that was why Jill Pole was crying on that dull autumn day on the damp little path which runs between the back of the gym and the shrubbery. She hadn't finished her cry when a boy came round the corner. Oh, oh sorry. Oh, can't you look where you're going? I didn't see you there, so you need to start... Oh. I say, Jill, what's wrong? No, go away. It's them, isn't it? They've been bullying you again, haven't they? Mind your own business. Now look here, there's no good us all getting Don't ups. lecture me, Eustace. Nobody asked you to come barging in, did they? Besides, you're as bad as they are. Am I? You spent the whole of last term sucking up to them and bowing to everything they wanted. Hey, that's not fair. Have I been doing anything of the sort this term? Didn't I stand up to Carter about the rabbit? And, and, and didn't I keep the secret about Spivins? Under torture, too. And didn't all I right. even... All right. I don't know and I don't care. <sighs> Would you like a peppermint? Yes, please. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, Eustace. I wasn't being fair about what I said. You're not as bad now as you were last term. Forget about last term if you can. I was a little tick then. Well, honestly, you were. Mm. So you think there's been a change? It's not only me. Everyone's been saying so. Some of us like it, but they don't, you know. They liked it better when you were on their side. Ah. Uh, I'd better watch out then. <laughs> so, what happened? What do you mean? Why are you so different now? Ah, uh, well, a lot of strange things happened to me during the summer. What sort of things? <laughs> you wouldn't believe me. Why wouldn't I? Because... 
Look here, Jill. Can I trust you? <sighs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> I mean it, Jill. This is a really terrific secret. And if I thought you'd tell anyone else or, or laugh at me, I... Do I look like someone who's about to laugh? Hmm. And who would I tell? Right now, you seem to be the only friend I have. <laughs> but it's more than that. Supposing I told you I'd been to a place where animals can talk and where there are enchantments and dragons and, well, all the sorts of things you'd have in fairy tales. What would you say to that? Well, how did you get there? The only way you can, by magic. Magic? I was with two cousins of mine. We were just whisked away to this wonderful world. And then we had some amazing adventures and... and... Oh. What's wrong? Why are you looking at me like that? You're only saying this to make me feel better, aren't you? I'm not. I swear. It all happened. Oh, but what's the good of telling me about it? It's all very well and good that you went there and it changed you. But we jolly well can't get there now, can we? I've been wondering about that. When we came back from that world, or that place, I still don't know what to call it, someone there said my cousins could never go there again. It was their third time, you see. I suppose they've had their share. But he never said I couldn't. And I can't help wondering, can we? Could we? Do something to make it happen? Yes. You mean, we might draw a circle on the ground and write strange letters in it, and stand inside and recite charms and spells? Well, sort of. Though that's not how we got in before. And to be frank, I think all those circles and things are rather rot. I don't think he'd like them. It would look as if we thought we could make him do things, but really, we can only ask him. Who is this person you keep talking about? They call him Aslan in that place. Aslan? Mm. What a curious name. Not half so curious as he is. But let's get on. It can't do any harm just asking. Let's stand side by side. Like this? Right. And we hold out our arms in front of us, with the palms facing down, like they did in Romandu's island. Whose island? I'll tell you about that another time. And he might like us to face the east. Let's see. Where is the east? Ah, that's the east. Facing up into the laurels. Now, will you say the words after me? What words? The words I'm going to say, of course. Now. Aslan. 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 Please let the two of us go into your... Wait! What's that? Oh no! It's them! Hurry! Into the laurels! Ow! The slope. Okay. There, up ahead, a gate. But that leads to the moors, and it's always locked, so we can't escape. We'll have to hope it's open now. Here, it's sure to be locked. Oh, by gum, it's open. How odd. The sun is so bright. Mm. But it was grey and overcast a moment ago. I can't see them all. Eustace. Oh, I say. 
I think that's... I mean... Could it be Narnia? What? Is that your world? Come on, Jill. Do you want to go or not? But... Can we get back? Is it safe? Quick, take my hand. We mustn't get separated. Separated? But what? Come on! Are we on the top of a mountain? I don't know. We must be. Look at the size of those trees. And I've never seen those kinds of birds before. I suspect you'll see a lot of things you've never seen before. The trees seem to stop just ahead. Perhaps it's the end of this forest. Let's go. It's a very lonely forest, isn't it? Oh, be careful, Jill. Why? You don't want to fall off the edge of the cliff, do you? Oh, my. I've never been up so high. It's nothing but blue sky ahead. I see. Are those sheep down there? They're clouds, I think. Clouds? They are. But what's beyond them? Is it a field? A wood? <laughs> I don't know. I can't see from here. Just stay back, will you? What's wrong with you? We're awfully high up. Please come away from the edge. I'm not a child, Eustace. And I'm certainly not afraid of heights. See? This doesn't bother me at all. What are you doing, Jill? Come back. Don't be an idiot. Don't call me names. Oh, It is a long way down. Take my hand, Jill. One could fall forever. Jill! I'm afraid. Then take my hand. But I don't dare move. I'll fall. Stay calm. My legs, they feel like putty. Right. Listen to me, Jill. To reach out and take your arm and pull you back. Don't move. No! Just let me. Don't! I'm afraid. It's only a couple of steps. Do you hear? I'll take your arm. Eustace's voice seemed to be coming from a long way off. Jill felt him grabbing her. But by now she had no control over her own arms and legs. There was a moment struggling on the cliff edge. Jill was too frightened and dizzy to know quite what she was doing. But two things she remembered as long as she lived. One was that she had wrenched herself free of Eustace's clutches. The other was that at the same moment he himself had lost his balance. Fortunately, Jill was given no time to think over what she'd done, for a huge, brightly coloured animal had rushed over and lay down next to her. It leaned over the edge of the cliff, and this was the odd thing, blue. It didn't roar or snort, but just blew from its wide-opened mouth, blowing out as steadily as a vacuum cleaner sucks in. Jill was so close to the creature that she could feel the breath vibrating steadily through its body. She was lying perfectly still because she couldn't get up. She was nearly fainting. Indeed, she wished she could really faint, but faints don't come for the asking. 
At last she saw, far away below her, a tiny black speck floating away from the cliff and slightly upwards. As it rose, it also got further away. By the time it was nearly on a level with the cliff top, it was so far off that she'd lost sight of it. It was obviously moving away from them at a great speed. Jill couldn't help thinking that the animal at her side was blowing it away. So she turned and looked at the creature. A lion! You're a lion! It must be a dream. It must. It must. Oh, I'll wake up in a moment. The lion rose to its feet and without a glance at Jill, gave one last blow. Then, as if satisfied with its work, it turned and stalked slowly away back into the forest. I do wish we'd never come to this dreadful place. I don't believe Eustace knew any more about it than I do. Or if he did, he had no business to bring me here without warning me what it was like. It's not my fault he fell over that cliff. If he'd left me alone, we would both be all right now. <laughs> oh, Eustace. Crying is all right in its way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later, and then you still have to decide what to do. When Jill stopped, she found she was dreadfully thirsty. She'd been lying face downward, but now she sat up. She listened carefully and felt almost sure she heard the sound of running water. There was no sign of the lion, though there were so many trees it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. But her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up the courage to go and look for that running water. She went on tiptoes, stealing cautiously from tree to tree and stopping to look round her at every step. Jill eventually came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she'd been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream, lay the lion, with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If you're thirsty, you may drink. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Uh, Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst. Then drink. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? All right. Do you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise. Then, oh dear, I mean, 
I'm so thirsty, you see. And... Do you eat girls? Oh, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. I daren't come and drink. Then you will die of thirst. Oh dear. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who'd seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she'd been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she'd finished. Now, she realized, this would be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there, with her lips still wet from drinking. Come here. And she had to. She was almost between its front paws now, looking straight into its face. But she couldn't stand that for long. She lowered her eyes. Human child, where is the boy? He fell over the cliff, sir. How did he come to do that, human child? He was trying to stop me from falling, sir. Why were you so near the edge, human child? I was showing off, sir. That is a very good answer, human child. Do so no more. And now the boy is safe. I have blown him to Narnia. But your task will be the harder because of what you have done. What task, sir? The task for which I called you and him here out of your own world. Um, Speak your thought, human giant. I was wondering, I mean, could there be some mistake? Because nobody called me in Eustace, you know. It was we who asked to come here. Eustace said we were to call to, to somebody. It was a name I wouldn't know. And perhaps a somebody would let us in. And we did. And then we found the door open. You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. Then you were the somebody, sir. I am. And now hear your task. Far from here in the land of Narnia, there lives an aged king who is sad because he has no prince of his blood to be king after him. He has no heir because his only son was stolen from him many years ago. And no one in Narnia knows where that prince went or whether he is still alive. But he is. I lay on you this command that you seek this lost prince until either you have found him and brought him to his father's house, 
or else died in the attempt, or else gone back into your own world. But how, please? I will tell you, child. These are the signs by which I will guide you in your quest. First, as soon as the boy Eustace sets foot in Narnia, he will meet an old and dear friend. He must greet that friend at once. If he does, you will both have good health. Second, you must journey out of Narnia to the north till you come to the ruined city of the ancient giants. Third, you shall find a writing on a stone in that ruined city and you must do what the writing tells you. Fourth, you will know the Lost Prince, if you find him, by this. That he will be the first person you have met in your travels, who will ask you to do something in my name. In the name of Aslan. I see. Child, perhaps you do not see quite as well as you think. But the first step is to remember. Repeat to me, in order, the four signs. Oh, um, well. The first sign is that we'll go to a city of ancient giants. No, that's not right. Uh... No, child. It is important for you to remember them as I've said them. Try again. Jill tried again and still didn't get them quite right. So the lion corrected her and made her repeat them again and again till she could say them perfectly. He was very patient over this, so that when it was done, Jill plucked up the courage to ask him, Sir, how am I to get to Narnia? On my breath. Oh. I will blow you into the west of the world, as I blew Eustace. Shall I catch him in time to tell him the first sign? You will have no time to spare. That is why I must send you at once. Come, walk before me to the edge of the cliff. Sir, I realize now that if I hadn't made such a fool of myself, Eustace and I would have been going together, and he'd have had all the instructions as well as me. It was very alarming walking back to the edge of the cliff, especially as the lion did not walk with her, but behind her, making no noise on his soft paws. Long before she'd got anywhere near the edge, the lion said, Stand still. In a moment, I will blow. But first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing Turn your mind from following the signs. And 
second, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And now, daughter of Eve, farewell. The voice had been growing softer towards the end of this speech, and now it faded away altogether. Jill looked behind her. To her astonishment, she saw the cliff already more than a hundred yards behind her, and the lion himself, a speck of bright gold on the edge of it. She'd been setting her teeth and crunching her fists for a terrible blast of lion's breath. But the breath had really been so gentle that she hadn't even noticed the moment at which she left the earth. And now, there was nothing but air for thousands upon thousands of feet below her. Jill felt frightened only for a second. For one thing, the world beneath her was so very far away that it seemed to have nothing to do with her. For another, Floating on the breath of the lion was so extremely comfortable. If Jill had ever been in a balloon, she might have thought it like that, only better. So you're here. I only just arrived. Oh, Eustace, it was magnificent. I flew. Oh, really? Yes, for hours and hours it seemed, though it was so soft and comfortable. It might have been less time, or longer. <sighs> oh, I don't know. It was like a dream. And then I slowly came down and saw the ocean and the land and went through a cloud, which is how I got so wet. And then I saw this beautiful castle and this ship and, and I came down ever so gently in that thicket of trees over there. And, oh, Eustace, it was... It was... Oh, I do wish you'd stop jabbering on. I want to listen. The king's about to make a farewell speech, I think. What king? How many kings do you see? The old one there on the ship. Jill looked towards the ship and found its splendour so great she had a difficult time finding the king. It was a tall ship, with high forecastle and high poop, gilded and crimson, with a great flag at the masthead, and many banners waving from the decks, and a row of shields bright as silver along the bulwarks. The gangplank was laid to her, and Jill saw, at the foot of it, the king. He was an old, old man. He wore a rich mantle of scarlet which opened in front to show his silver mail shirt. 
there was a thin circlet of gold on his head. His beard, white as wool, fell nearly to his waist. His eyes were watery, and he looked as if a puff of wind could blow him away. He's making a farewell speech. Where is he going? How am I supposed to know? Is he the King of Narnia? Oh, bother! Stop asking so many questions. I don't know. I'm not even certain that this is Narnia. I thought you said you'd been here before. Well, you thought wrong then. But you told me. For heaven's sake, dry up and let's hear what they're saying. Jill turned to look again and noticed for the first time the people surrounding the king. If people is the right word, for only about one in every five was human. The rest were things you never see in our world. Fawns, satyrs, centaurs. And there were a lot of animals she knew well. Bears, badgers, moles, leopards, mice, and various birds. But then they were so very different from the animals which one called by the same names in England. Some of them were much bigger. The mice, for instance, stood on their hind legs and were over two feet high. But apart from their size, you could see by the expression in their faces that they could talk and think just as well as you could. And there were dwarfs, too. One in particular was next to the king, sitting in a little chair on wheels, which was harnessed to a little donkey, not much bigger than a large retriever. The dwarf was as richly dressed as the king. But because of his fatness, and because he was sitting hunched up among cushions, the effect was quite different. It made him look like a shapeless little bundle of fur and silk and velvet. He was as old as the king, but more hale and hearty, with very keen eyes. His bare head, which was bald and extremely large, shone like a gigantic billiard ball in the sunset light. The king was speaking to him, but Jill couldn't hear what was said. And as far as she could make out, the dwarf made no answer, though he nodded and wagged his head a great deal. Then the king raised his voice and addressed everyone present, but his voice was so old and cracked that she could understand very little of his speech, especially since it was about people and places she'd never heard of. The courtiers around them appeared to be greatly moved. Handkerchiefs were got out. Sounds of sobbing were heard in every direction. Jill was about to ask Eustace if he understood what the king had said or recognized any of the names he'd mentioned when she suddenly remembered the signs. Eustace, quick! Do you see anyone you know? What? There isn't a moment to lose. Don't you see some old friend here? Because you've got to go and speak to him at once. What are you talking about? It's Aslan, the lion. Says you've got to. I've seen him. Aslan, I mean. Oh, you have, have you? He said the very first person you saw in Narnia would be an old friend. And you've got to speak to him at once. Well, there's nobody here I've ever seen before. The king stooped and kissed the dwarf on both cheeks straightened himself, raised his right hand as if in blessing, and went slowly and with feeble steps up the gangway and on board the ship. The gangway was cast off, trumpets sounded, and the ship moved away from the quay. Now, I wonder what that was all about. Who are you two, if I may ask? There's something magic about you. I saw you arrive. 
You flew. Oh. My name is Eustace and this is Jill. Would you mind telling us where we are? In the land of Narnia at the king's castle of Caerparavel. Is that the king who just left on that ship? Too true, too true. But now you must tell me how you flew. Uh, we were sent here by Aslan. Aslan! This is almost too much for me. So early in the evening, I'm not quite myself till the sun's down. We've been sent to find the lost prince. It's the first I've heard about it. What prince? You better come and speak to the Lord Regent at once. That's him over there in the donkey carriage. Trumpkin the dwarf. What to do? What to do? Wait! What's the king's name? Caspian the Ted. Caspian? <clears throat> Lord Regent. Hey! What's that? Two strangers, my lord. Rangers? What do you mean? I see two uncommonly grubby man cubs. What do they want? My name's Jill. The girl's called Jill. The girls are killed? I don't believe a word of it. What girls? Who killed them? Nobody's been killed. Who? Nobody! Bilge and barnacles, you needn't shout. I'm not so deaf as all that. What do you mean by coming here to tell me that nobody's been killed? Why should anyone have been killed? Better tell them I'm Eustace. The boy's Eustace, my lord. Useless? I dare say he is. Is that any reason for bringing him to court, eh? Not useless. Useless! I tell you what, Master Glimfeather. When I was a young dwarf, there used to be talking beasts and birds in this country who really could talk. There wasn't all this mumbling and muttering and whispering. Wouldn't have been tolerated for a moment. Not for a moment. Now, hold on while I get me trumpet. Oh, I know it's around here somewhere. Trumpet? It's uh, as a hearing aid when he puts it to his ear. Ooh, ooh, no, my brain's a bit clearer now. Well, don't say anything about the lost prince. I'll explain later. It wouldn't do. Wouldn't do. Uh, there. Now, if you have anything sensible to say, Master Glimfeather, try and say it into the trumpet. Take a deep breath and don't attempt to speak too quickly. These two have been sent by Aslan to visit the court of Narnia. Manes and mandibles, sent by the lion himself, eh? And from... Hmm, that other place, beyond the world's end, eh? Yes, my lord. Son of Adam and daughter of Eve. <laughs> well, my dears, you are very heartily welcome. If the good king, my poor master, had not this very hour set sail for seven isles, he would have been glad of your coming. <laughs> it would have brought back his youth to him for a moment. For a moment. And now... It is high time for supper. <laughs> you shall tell me your business in full council tomorrow morning. Master Glimfeather, see that bedchambers and suitable clothes and all else are provided for these guests in the most honourable fashion. And Glimfeather, in your ear. Yes, my lord. See that they're properly washed. <laughs> Gilbert. Yes, my lord. 
take me back to the castle. As you wish, my lord. Yeah! Come along, then. What do we do now, Eustace? Follow Trunk into the castle, I suppose. It's the thing to do. Thing to do. Last. I've been trying to find you for ever so long. I've had a bath. I see you have too. And don't you look odd in those Narnian clothes? No more than you. I say, Eustace, isn't it all simply too exciting and scrumptious for words? Is that what you think it is? I wish to goodness we'd never come. Why on earth? I can't bear it, seeing the king, Caspian, a doddering old man like that. It's, it's frightful. Why? Oh, you don't understand. Now that I come to think of it, you couldn't. I didn't tell you that this world has a different time from ours. How do you mean? The time you spend here doesn't take up any of our time. Do you see? Mm. I mean, however long we spend here, we should still get back to school at the moment we left it. That won't be much fun. And when you're back in England, our world, you can't tell how time is going here. It might be any number of years in Narnia, while we're having just one year at home. The Pevensies explained it all to me, but like a fool I forgot about it. And now apparently it's been about 70 years, Narnian years, since I was here last. Do you see now? And I come back and I find Caspian, an old, old man. Then the King was an old friend of yours. I should jolly well think he was. About as good a friend as a chap could have. And last time he was only a few years older than me. And to see that old man with a white beard. And to remember Caspian as he was the morning we captured the Lone Islands. Or in the fight with the sea serpent. Oh, it's frightful. It's worse than coming back and finding him dead. It's far worse than you think. We missed the first sign. What do you mean? Aslan said, as soon as the boy Eustace sets foot in Narnia, he will meet an old and dear friend. He must greet that friend at once. If he does, you will both have good help. That was the first sign. There are three others, and they're all to help us find the lost prince. So you did see an old friend, just as Aslan said, and you ought to have gone and spoken to him at once. And now you haven't, and everything is going wrong from the beginning. But how was I supposed to know? If you'd only listened to me when I tried to tell you, we'd be all right. Yes, and if you hadn't played the fool on the edge of that cliff and jolly nearly murdered me, well... <gasps> murdered? Yes, I said murder. Then we'd have come together and both known what to do. Was he the first person you saw? You must have been here for hours before me. Are you sure you didn't see anyone else first? I was only here about a minute before you. He must have blown you quicker than me, making up for lost time, the time you lost. Don't be a beast, Eustace. Oh, oh, hello. What's that? It was the castle bell ringing for supper. Both had a good appetite by this time and were astounded by the splendor and lavishness of the meal. Each course came in with trumpeters and kettle drums. There were soups and seafood, venison and fowl, pies and ices and jellies and fruits and nuts and all manner of drinks. Even Eustace cheered up. Much later, when they were dragging themselves upstairs to bed, yawning their heads off, Jill said, I bet we sleep well tonight. 
which just shows how little anyone knows what's going to happen to them next. For once Jill was back in her room and about to get undressed for bed, she was startled by a tap on the window. What on earth is that? Oh, I hope they don't have giant moths in this country. Oh, it's a huge bird. But, oh, it's the owl. What are you doing at my window? Hush, hush, don't make a noise. Now, are you too really in earnest about what you've got to do? What we... about the Lost Prince, you mean? Yes, we've got to be. Good, then there's no time to lose. You must get away from here at once. I'll go and wake the other human, then I'll come back for you. You better change those court clothes and put on something you can travel in. I'll be back in tutus. But... Where are we going? Thank you for the ride. It was most enjoyable. But why have you brought me to this tower? And where's Eustace? I'm here, Jill. Oh. We seem to be doing an awful lot of flying lately. I should say. Now I think we're all here. Let us hold a parliament of ours. Uh, I suppose all you chaps, owls I mean, know that King Caspian X, in his young days, sailed to the eastern end of the world. Well, I was with him on that journey. With him and Reaper Cheap the Mouse and the Lord Drinian and all of them. I know it sounds hard to believe, but people don't grow older in our world at the same speed as they do in yours. And what I want to say is this, that I'm the King's man and if this Parliament of Owls is any sort of plot against the King, I'm having nothing to do with it. Oh, we're all the King's Owls, too. What's this all about, then? It's only this, that if the Lord Regent, the Dwarf Trumpkin, hears you're going to look for the Lost Prince, he won't let you start. He'd rather keep you under lock and key. Great Scott! You don't mean that Trumpkin's a traitor? No, no. Trumpkin's no traitor. But more than 30 champions, knights, centaurs, good giants and all sorts have at one time or another set out to look for the lost prince and none of them have ever come back. And at last the king said he was not going to have all the bravest Narnians destroyed in the search for his son. And now nobody is allowed to go. Oh, oh but surely he'd let me go when he knew who I was and, and who had sent me. Sent both of us. Yes, I think very likely he would. But the king's away and Trumpkin will stick to the rules. He's as true as steel. But he's deaf as a post and very peppery. You could never make him see that this might be the time for making an exception to the rule. Oh, how long is the king going to be away? If only we knew. You see, there's been a rumour lately that Aslan himself has been seen in the islands, in Terabinthia, I think it was. And the king said he would make one more attempt before he died to see Aslan face to face again and ask his advice about who was to be king after him. But we're all afraid that if he doesn't meet Aslan in Terabinthia, he'll go on east 
to the Seven Isles, Lone Islands, and on and on. He never talks about it, but we all know he has never forgotten the voyage to the world's end. And I'm sure, in his heart of hearts, he wants to go there again. Then there's no good waiting for him to come back. Oh, no good. Oh, what to do? What to do? If only you two had known and spoken to him at once, he'd have arranged everything. Probably give you an army to go with you in search of the prince. Well, we'll just have to manage without. But there's just one more thing I want to know. If this owl's parliament, as you call it, is, is all fair and above board and means no mischief, why does it have to be so jolly secret, meeting in a ruined tower in dead of night and all that? Well, where else should we meet? When would anyone meet except at night? It would be unnatural to meet during the day, oh. in blazing sunlight, oh, and everyone ought to be asleep. Oh, I take your point. Well, now, let's get on. Tell us all about the lost prince. An old owl, not Glimfeather, came forward and related the story. About ten years ago, when Rillian, the son of Caspian, was a very young knight, he rode with the queen his mother on a May morning in the north parts of Narnia. They had many squires and ladies with them, and all wore garlands of fresh leaves on their heads and horns at their sides. In the warm part of the day, they came to a pleasant glade where a fountain flowed freshly out of the earth, and there they dismounted and ate and drank and were merry. After a time, the queen felt sleepy and they spread cloaks for her on the grassy bank, and Prince Rillian with the rest of the party went a little way from her, that their tales and laughter might not wake her. And so, presently, a great serpent came out of the thick wood and stung the queen in her hand. All heard her cry out and rushed towards her, and Rillian was first at her side. He saw the serpent gliding away and made after it with his sword drawn. It was great, shining, and as green as poison, so that he could see it well. But it glided away into thick bushes, and he could not come at it. So he returned to his mother and found them all busy about her. But they were busy in vain, for at the first glance of her face, Rillian knew that no physician in the world would do her good. As long as the life was in her, she seemed to be trying hard to tell him something. But she could not speak clearly, and whatever her message was, she died without delivering it. It was then hardly ten minutes since they'd first heard her cry. They carried the dead queen back to Care Paravel, and she was bitterly mourned by Rillian and by the king and by all Narnia. The queen had been a great lady, wise and gracious and happy. King Caspian's bride, whom he'd brought home from the eastern end of the world. And men said that the blood of the stars flowed in her veins. The prince took his mother's death very hard. 
After that, he was always riding on the northern marches of Narnia, hunting for that venomous serpent to kill it and be avenged. No one remarked much on this, though the prince came home from these wanderings, looking tired and distraught. But about a month after the queen's death, some said they could see a change in him. There was a look in his eyes, as of a man who'd seen visions. And though he'd be out all day, his horse didn't bear the signs of hard riding. His chief friend among the older courtiers was the Lord Drinian, who had been his father's captain on that great voyage to the east parts of the earth. Your Highness. Yes, Lord Drinian. You must soon give over seeking the serpent. There is no true vengeance on a witless brute as there might be on a man. You weary yourself in vain. My lord, I have almost forgotten the serpent these past seven days. Uh, uh, why, if that were so, do you ride so continually in the northern woods? My lord, I have seen there the most beautiful thing that was ever made. Uh, uh, fair prince, of your courtesy... Let me ride with you tomorrow, that I also may see this fair thing. With a good will. Mm. The next day they saddled their horses and rode at a great gallop into the northern woods and alighted at that same fountain where the queen had been bitten by the serpent. Drinian thought it strange that the prince should choose that place of all places to linger in. And there they rested till it came to high noon. And at noon, Drinian looked up and saw the most beautiful lady he had ever seen. She stood at the north side of the fountain and said no word, but beckoned to the prince with her hand as if she bade him come to her. She was tall and great, shining and wrapped in a thin garment as green as poison and the prince stared at her like a man out of his wits. But suddenly, the lady was gone. Drinia knew not where, and the two returned to Care Paravel. It struck Drinian's mind that this shining green woman was evil. Drinian knew he ought to tell this adventure to the king, but he had little wish to be a blab or a tale-bearer and so he held his tongue. But afterwards, he wished he had spoken, for next day, Prince Rillian rode out alone. That night he did not return, and from that hour no trace of him was ever found in Narnia or any neighboring land, and neither his horse, nor his hat, nor his cloak, nor anything else was ever found. Lord King, slay me speedily as a great traitor. For by my silence, I have destroyed your son. Drinian, I have lost my queen and my son. Shall I lose my friend also? <laughs> Such was the story of Rillian. Now 
I bet that serpent and that woman were the same person. Oh, true, true. We think the same as you, but we don't think she killed the prince. We know she didn't. Aslan told me he was still alive somewhere. Oh, that almost makes it worse. It means she has some use for him and some deep scheme against Narnia. What makes you think so? Long, long ago, at the very beginning, a white witch came out of the north and bound our land in snow and ice for a hundred years. And we think this may be some of the same crew. Very well, then. Jill and I have got to go and find this prince. Can you help us? Have you any clue, you two? Yes, we know we've got to go north. And we know we've got to reach the ruins of a giant city. Oh! What's wrong with everyone? Well, I believe what the Parliament is trying to say is that they're sorry that they themselves cannot go with you on your search for the lost prince. But, but you would want to travel by day and they would want to travel by night. It, no, it wouldn't do. It wouldn't do. Well, whether you come or not, we still have to go. How do I find this ruined city of giants? Oh, if you want to go that way to Ettensmore, we can take you to one of the marsh wiggles. They're the only people who can help you much. Come along then. I'll take one. Who'll take the other? Oh, it must be done tonight. Oh, I'll take one, Glimfeather, but only as far as the marsh wiggles. Right. Are you ready? I am. So am I. Then off we go. Wake up, Puddle Glum. Wake up. It's on the lion's business. We're in the middle of nowhere. Are you sure someone's here? Look! There's a light in the distance. Owls ahoy! What is it? Is the king dead? Has an enemy landed in Narnia? Is it flood? Or dragons, I shouldn't wonder. The voice and the dim light came closer and closer out of the darkness. When the light reached them, it turned out to be that of a large lantern. Jill could see very little of the person who held it. He seemed to be all legs and arms. The owls were talking to him, explaining everything, but she was too tired to listen. She tried to wake herself up a bit when she realized that they were saying goodbye to her. But she could never afterwards remember much except that sooner or later she and Eustace were stooping to enter a low doorway and then were lying down on something soft and warm. And a voice was saying, There you are. Best we can do. You'll lie cold and hard. Damp too, I shouldn't wonder. Won't sleep a wink, most likely. Even if there isn't a thunderstorm or a flood. Or the wigwam doesn't fall down on top of us all, as I've known them do. Must make the best of it. What? I didn't say anything. Oh. oh. Where on earth are we? 
in the wigwam of a marsh wiggle. A what? A marsh wiggle. <laughs> Don't ask me what it is. <laughs> I couldn't see it last night. <sighs> I'm getting up. Let's go and look for it. Oh, how beastly one feels after sleeping in one's clothes. <laughs> I was just thinking how nice it was not to have to dress. <laughs> or what either, I suppose. Uh, Typical boy. <laughs> oh, what do you see? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. We're, we're in the middle of a marsh. Let me see. What Eustace and Jill saw outside was quite unlike the bit of Narnia they'd seen on the day before. They were on a great flat plain which was cut into countless little islands by countless channels of water. The islands were covered with coarse grass and bordered with reeds and rushes. Sometimes there were beds of rushes, about an acre in extent. Clouds of birds were constantly alighting in them and rising from them again. Duck, snipe, bitterns and herons. Many wigwams, like that in which they passed the night, could be seen dotted about, but all at a good distance from one another, for marsh wiggles are people who like privacy. Except for the fringe of the forest, several miles to the south and west of them, there was not a tree in sight. It would have been a depressing place on a wet evening. Seen under the morning sun, with the fresh wind blowing and the air filled with the crying of the birds, there was something fine and fresh and clean about its loneliness. The children felt their spirits rise. Where has the thingamy got to, I wonder? The marsh wiggle. I expect he... Oh! Hello. That must be him over there. Come on. What's he doing? Fishing, I think. As they drew nearer, the figure turned its head and showed them a long, thin face with rather sunken cheeks, a tightly shut mouth, a sharp nose, and no beard. He was wearing a high-pointed hat like a steeple with an enormously wide, flat brim. The hair, if it could be called hair, which hung over his large ears, was greeny-gray, and each lock was flat rather than round, so that they were like tiny reeds. Although his body was not much bigger than a dwarf's, he had very long legs and arms, which would have made him taller than most men when he stood up. The fingers of his hands were webbed like a frog's, and so were his bare feet, which dangled in the muddy water. He was dressed in earth-coloured clothes, which hung loose about him. His expression was solemn, his complexion muddy, and you could see at once that he took a very serious view of life. Good morning, guests. And you. Good morning. Though when I say good, I don't mean it won't probably turn to rain, or it might be snow, or fog, or thunder. You didn't get any sleep, I dare say. Yes, we did, though. We had a lovely night. Ah, I see you're making the best of a bad job. That's right. You've been well brought up, you have. You've learned to put a good face on things. Uh, please, we don't know your name. Paddleglum's my name, but it doesn't matter if you forget it, I can always tell you again. I'm trying to catch a few eels to make an eel stew for our dinner. Oh, I shouldn't wonder if I didn't get any, and you won't like them much if I do. Oh, why not? 
Why, it's not in reason that you should like our sort of victuals, though I've no doubt you'll put a bold face on it. All the same, while I am catching of them, if you two could try to light the fire, no harm trying. The wood's behind the wigwam. It may be wet. You could light it inside the wigwam, and then we'd all get the <coughs> smoke in our eyes. Oh. Or you could light it outside, and then the rain would come and put it out. Here's my tinderbox. Thank you. You won't know how to use it, I expect. But Eustace had learned that sort of thing on his last adventure. The children ran back together to the wigwam and found the wood, which was perfectly dry, and succeeded in lighting a fire with rather less than the usual difficulty. Eustace took care of it while Jill had a wash. After that, she saw to the fire and he had a wash. And presently, the marsh wiggle joined them. In spite of his expectation of catching no eels, he had a dozen or so which he'd already skinned and cleaned. He put a big pot on and mended the fire. Now, those eels will take a mortal long time to cook, and either of you might faint with hunger before they're done. So, to keep your minds off your hunger, we may as well talk about our plans. Yes, do let's. Can you help us to find Prince Rillian? Well, I don't know that you'd call it help. I don't know that anyone can exactly help. It stands to reason we're not likely to get very far on a journey to the north. Not at this time of the year, with the winter coming on soon and all, and an early winter too, by the look of things. But you mustn't let that make you downhearted. Very likely, what with enemies and mountains and rivers to cross and losing our way and next to nothing to eat and sore feet, we'll hardly notice the weather. And if we don't get far enough to do any good, we may get far enough not to get back in a hurry. Uh, you keep saying we. Are you coming with us? Oh, yes. I'm coming, of course. Might as well, you see. I don't suppose we shall ever see the king back in Narnia now that he's set off to foreign parts. And he had a nasty cough when he left. Then there's Trumpkin. He's failing fast. And you'll find there'll have been a bad harvest after this terrible dry summer. And I shouldn't wonder if some enemy attacked Narnia. Mark my words. And how shall we start? Well, all the others who ever went looking for Prince Rillian started from that same fountain where the Lord Drinian saw the lady. They went north, mostly, and as none of them ever came back, we can't exactly say how they got on. We've got to start by finding a ruined city of giants. Aslan said so. Got to start by finding it, have we? Not allowed to start by looking for it, I suppose? That's what I meant, of course. And then, when we found it... If... Uh, doesn't anyone know where it is? I don't know about anyone. And I won't say I haven't heard of that ruined city. You wouldn't start from the fountain, though. You'd have to go across Ettingsmore. That's where the ruined city is. If it's anywhere. But I've been as far in that direction as most people. I never got to any ruins, so I won't deceive you. Well... Where's Ettingsmore? Look over there, northward. See those hills and bits of cliff? That's the beginning of Ettingsmore. But there's a river between it and us, the River Shribble. No bridges, of course. I suppose we can ford it, though. Well, it has been forded. 
Perhaps we can meet people on Ettingsmoor who can tell us the way. You're right about meeting people. What sort of people live there? It's not for me to say that they aren't all right in their own way, if you like their way. Yes, but what are they? There are so many strange creatures in this country. I mean, are they animals or birds or dwarfs or what? Don't you know? I thought the owls had told you. They're giants. But, but the king told me long ago, that time I was with him at sea, that he'd jolly well beaten those giants in a war and made them pay him tribute. That's true enough. They're at peace with us, all right. As long as we stay on our own side of the shrivel, they won't do us any harm. Over on their side, on the moor, ooh, still there's always a chance. If we don't get near any of them, and if none of them forget themselves, and if we're not seen, it's just possible we might get a long way. Oh, look here. I don't believe the whole thing can be half as bad as you're making out. Huh? Aslan would never have sent us if there was so little chance as all that. That's the spirit, Eustace. That's the way to talk. Put a good face on it. But we all need to be very careful about our tempers. Seeing all the hard times we shall have to go through together won't do to quarrel, you know. At any rate, don't begin it too soon. I know these expeditions usually end that way, knifing one another, I shouldn't wonder, before it's all done. But the longer we can keep off it... If you feel so hopeless, I think you'd better stay behind. Jill and I can go on alone, can't we, Jill? Oh, shut up, Eustace. Don't you lose heart, Jill. I'm coming sure and certain. I'm not going to lose an opportunity like this. It will do me good. They all say, I mean, the other Wiggles all say, that I'm too flighty. Don't take life seriously enough. If they've said it once, they've said it a thousand times. Paddle glum, they've said. You're altogether too full of bobbards and bounce and high spirits. You've got to learn that life isn't all fricasseed frogs and eel pie. You want something to sober you down a bit. That's what they say. Now, a job like this, a journey up north, just as winter's beginning, looking for a prince that probably isn't there by way of a ruined city that no one has ever seen, it'll be just the thing. If that doesn't steady a chap, I don't know what will. Now, let's see how those eels are getting on. When the meal came, it was delicious, and the children had two large helpings each, though the marsh wiggle said they were only being polite. The rest of the day was spent in preparation for an early start the next morning. Puddle Glum, being the biggest, said he would carry three blankets with a large bit of bacon rolled up inside them. Jill was to carry the remains of the eels, some biscuit, and the tinderbox. Eustace was to carry both his own cloak and Jill's when they didn't wear them. Puddleglum also took his best bow and gave his second best to Eustace, who had learned some shooting when he sailed to the east under Caspian. They also took two swords and a knife. All three went to bed early in the wigwam. This time the children really had a rather bad night. That was because Puddleglum snored so loudly and continuously that when Jill at last got to sleep, she dreamed all night about road drills, waterfalls, and being in express trains.
Watch out. Carefully on the stones. Don't want to get oh. wet. There we go. I'm going to There. That wasn't much of a river. More like a noisy stream. Right. So, we're on the other side of the shrivel. Which way from here? Uh, west, through that shallow gorge. No. The giants mainly live along the side of that gorge. Oh. You might say the gorge was like a street to them. Mm. We do better straight ahead, even though it's a bit steep. <sighs> they set out. It was good springy ground for walking and a day of pale winter sunlight. As they got deeper into Ettensmoor, their loneliness increased. They halted for a rest and drink in a little hollow by a stream. When they set out again, Jill noticed that the rocky edge of the gorge had drawn nearer, and the rocks were less flat, more upright than they had been. In fact, they were like little towers of rock. And what funny shapes they were. I do believe that all those stories about giants might have come from those funny rocks. What do you mean? If you were coming along here when it was half dark, hmm? you could easily think those piles of rocks were giants. Hmm. <laughs> yes, look at that one. You could almost imagine that lump on top was a head. Hmm. It would be rather too big for the body, but it would do well enough for an ugly giant. <laughs> <laughs> and all that bushy stuff. Hmm. I suppose it's heather and bird's nests, really. They do quite well for hair and beard. Hmm. <laughs> and the things sticking out on each side. They're quite like ears. <laughs> they are giants. What? Don't stop. Keep straight on. Don't look at them. And whatever you do, don't run. They'll be after us in a moment. But there must be dozens of them. <gasps> what are they doing? Are they aiming those rocks at us? No. We'd be a good deal safer if they were. Huh? They are trying to hit that mound of stones over there on the right. It's a game they play. About the only one they're clever enough to understand. Oh, did it, you know. Safe enough. They're such very bad shots. Oh, my. <laughs> Stay close together. Look out. That was close. It was a horrible time. There seemed no end to the line of giants, and they never ceased hurling stones, some of which fell extremely close. After about 25 minutes, the giants apparently had a quarrel. This put an end to their game. They stormed and jeered at one another in long, meaningless words of about 20 syllables each. They then hit each other on the head with great clumsy stone hammers, but their skulls were so hard that the hammers bounced off again. By the end of an hour, all the giants were so hurt that they sat down and began to cry. When they sat down, their heads disappeared behind the edge of the gorge so that you saw them no more. But Jill could hear them howling and boo-hooing like great babies even after the place was a mile behind. Uh, uh, I'm afraid we'll have to sleep on the moor tonight. I know the ground is hard and lumpy, but you'll feel more comfortable if you think how very much colder it will be later on and further north. Thank you, Puddle Glum.
They traveled across Ettensmoor for many days. Then about the tenth day, they came to the northern edge of the moor and looked down a long, steep slope into a different and grimmer land. At the bottom of the slope were cliffs. Beyond these, a country of high mountains, dark precipices, stony valleys, ravines so deep and narrow that one couldn't see far into them, and rivers that poured out of echoing gorges to plunge sullenly into black depths. Needless to say, it was Puddleglum who pointed out a sprinkling of snow on the more distant slopes. But there'll be more on the north side of them, I shouldn't wonder. Oh. It took them some time to reach the foot of the slope, and when they did, they looked down from the top of the cliffs at a river running below them. It was green and sunless, full of rapids and waterfalls. The roar of it shook the earth, even where they stood. Eustace, we'll never make it across that. The bright side of it is that if we break our necks getting down the cliff, then we're safe from being drowned in the river. Now, what about that? Eustace pointed upstream to their left. They all looked and saw the last thing they were expecting. A bridge. It was a huge single arch that spanned the gorge from cliff top to cliff top. It must be a giant's bridge. Mm. Or a sorcerer's, more likely. We've got to look out for enchantments in a place like this. I think it's a trap. I think it will turn into mist and melt away just when we're out on the middle of it. Oh, for goodness sake, don't be such a wet blanket. Why on earth shouldn't it be a proper bridge? Do you think any of the giants we've seen would have sense to build a thing like that? But mightn't it have been built by other giants? I mean, by giants who lived hundreds of years ago and were far cleverer than the modern kind. It might have been built by the same ones who built the giant city we're looking for. And that would mean we're on the right track. The old bridge leading to the old city. That's a real brainwave, Jill. It must be that. Come on! Oh, all right. Nobody ever listens to me. It seems solid enough. These stones must be at least as big as a Stonehenge. I mm. still don't trust it, but I'll cross it with you. I couldn't bear to stand by and watch you die when it crumbles under your feet. The climb up to the crown of the arch was long and heavy. In many places the great stones had dropped out, leaving horrible gaps through which you looked down on the river, foaming thousands of feet below. And the higher they went, the colder it grew. And the wind blew so that they could hardly keep their footing. It seemed to shake the bridge. When they reached the top and could look down the further slope of the bridge, they saw what looked like the remains of an ancient giant road stretching away before them into the heart of the mountains. And riding towards them on that ancient road, were two people of normal, grown-up, human size. Keep on. Move towards them. Anyone you meet in a place like this is as likely as not to be an enemy, but we mustn't let them think we're afraid. 
By the time they stepped off the end of the bridge onto the grass, the two strangers were quite close. One was a knight in complete armor with his visor down. His armor and his horse were black. There was no device on his shield, no banneret on his spear. The other was a lady on a white horse, a horse so lovely that you wanted to kiss its nose and give it a lump of sugar at once. But the lady who rode side saddle and wore a long fluttering dress of dazzling green was lovelier still. Good day, travelers. Some of you are young pilgrims to walk through this rough waste. That's as may be, ma'am. We're looking for the ruined city of the giants. The ruined city? That is a strange place to be seeking. What will you do if you find it? Oh, well, we've got uh, Begging to... your pardon, ma'am, but we don't know you or your friend. Silent chap, isn't he? And you don't know us. And we'd as soon as not talk to strangers about our business, if you don't mind. Shall we have a little rain soon, do you think? <laughs> oh, well, children, you have a wise, solemn old guide with you. Glad somebody thinks so. I think none the worst of him for keeping his own counsel. But I'll be free with mine. I have often heard the name of the giantish city ruinous, but never met any who would tell me the way thither. This road leads to the burg and castle of Harfang, where dwell the gentle giants. They are as mild, civil, prudent, and courteous as those of Ettinsmore are foolish, fierce, savage, and given to all beastliness. And in Harfang you may or may not hear tidings of the city ruinous, but certainly you shall find good lodgings and merry hosts. You would be wise to winter there, or at the least to tarry certain days for your ease and refreshment. There you shall have steaming baths, mm. soft beds, oh. and bright hearths. And the roast oh. and the baked oh. and the sweet and the strong will be on the table oh. four times a day. Mm. Oh, I say, that's more like it. Think of sleeping in a bed again. Oh, yes. <laughs> and having a hot bath. Mm. Do you think they'll ask us to stay? We don't know them, you see. Only tell them that she of the green kirtle salutes them by you and has sent them two fair southern children for the autumn feast. Oh, thank oh. you. But, but have a care. On whatever day you reach Harfang, that you come not to the door too late. For they shut their gates a few hours after noon. And it is the custom of the castle that they open to none when once they have drawn the bolt, how hard soever he knock. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my lady. <laughs> well, I'd give a good deal to know where she's coming from and where she's going. Not the sort you'd expect to meet in the wilds of Giantland, is she? 
Up to no good, I'll be bound. Oh, rot. I thought she was simply super. And think of hot meals and warm rooms. Oh, I do hope Harfang isn't a long way off. Mm, same here. Mm. And hadn't she a scrumptious dress? Oh, and the horse. Oh, All the same. I wish we knew a bit more about her. Well, I was going to ask her all about herself, but how could I when you wouldn't tell her anything about us? Yes, and why were you so stiff and unpleasant? Didn't you like them? Them? Who's them? I saw one. Didn't you see the knight? I saw a suit of armour. Why didn't he speak? I expect he was shy, or perhaps he just wants to look at her and listen to her lovely voice. I'm sure I would if I was him. I was wondering what you'd really see if you lifted up the visor of that helmet and looked inside. Hang it all. Think of the shape of the armour. What could be inside except a man? How about a skeleton? Oh. Or perhaps nothing at all. I mean, nothing you could see. <laughs> Someone invisible. Oh, really, Puddle Glum? You do have the most horrible ideas. How do you think of them all? Oh, oh bother his ideas. Huh? He's always expecting the worst, and he's always wrong. Ah. Let's think about those gentle giants and get to Harfang as quickly as we can. I don't think we should go to Harfang at all. What? I don't know what a giant's idea of being gentle might be. And anyway, Aslan's signs had said nothing about staying with giants. Gentle or otherwise. But Aslan didn't say we wouldn't stay with giants any more than he said anything about grumpy, sour-faced Marsh Wiggles. What? Look, Puddle Glum, the point is I'm sick of wind and rain and skinny fowl roasted over campfires and a hard, cold earth to sleep on. Even if it's a detour, it surely can't harm us to have a comfortable place to eat and sleep for a few nights. <sighs> Well, I'll go, but only on one condition. Mm -hmm. You must give me an absolute promise that unless I give you leave, you must not tell the gentle giants that we are from Narnia or that we're looking for Prince Rillian. I promise. I still don't see oh, why we... Oh, bother it all, Eustace. Just promise. I promise. May we go now? If you insist. Then let's go. After that, things got worse in two ways. In the first place, the country was much harder. The road led through endless narrow valleys down which a cruel north wind was always blowing in their faces. The ground was all stony and made your feet sore by day and every bit of you sore by night. And there was nothing that could be used for firewood. And there were no nice little hollows to camp in. In the second place, whatever the lady had intended by telling the children about Harfang, the actual effect was a bad one. They could think about nothing but beds and baths and hot meals and how lovely it would be to get indoors. That made them more sorry for themselves and more grumpy and snappy with each other and with Puddle Glum. They never talked about Aslan or even about the lost prince now. And Jill gave up her habit of repeating the signs over to herself every night and morning. At last they came one afternoon to a place where the gorge widened out and dark fir trees rose on either side. They looked ahead and saw that before them lay a desolate rocky plain. Beyond it further mountains capped with snow. 
But between them and those further mountains rose a low hill with an irregular, flattish top. Look! Look! Lights! I can see lights! Harfang! We finally found Harfang! Harfang! <laughs> it was far too late to think of reaching Harfang that day. But they had a hot meal of wild goose which Puddle Glum had caught and a roaring fire and started the night warmer than they'd been for over a week. They travelled the next day under a sunless sky and a wind that felt as if it would take your skin off. The ancient road was more ruinous than any they had yet seen. They had to pick their way over great broken stones and rubble, hard going for sore feet. At about 10 o'clock, it began to snow, lightly at first, but by the end of the hour, it was a good steady snowstorm that drove in their faces so that they could hardly see. As they drew near the low hill which separated them from the place where the lighted windows had appeared, they had no general view of it at all. Then they caught a glimpse of what might be rocks on each side, squarish rocks, if you looked at them carefully, but no one did. All were more concerned with the ledge right in front of them, which barred their way. It was about four feet high. I'll climb up and then help you two. Because of the snow, it was a nasty, wet business. They had a stiff climb up very rough ground for about a hundred yards and came to a second ledge. There were four of these ledges altogether at quite irregular intervals. As they struggled onto the fourth ledge, there was no mistaking the fact that they were now at the top of the flat hill, a great level tableland which was crisscrossed with curious banks and dikes varying from two to five feet in height and a couple of yards thick. All of these, of course, had to be climbed. The full fury of the wind blew snow in their faces. On their right, Jill had glimpses of other odd things on that horrible tableland. Things that looked vaguely like factory chimneys. On their left was a huge cliff, straighter than any cliff ought to be, but she wasn't at all interested and didn't give them a thought. The only things she thought about were her cold hands and nose and chin and ears and hot bars and beds at Harfang. Suddenly, she skidded, slid about five feet and found herself sliding down into a dark, narrow chasm which seemed to have appeared in front of her. Half a second later, she reached the bottom. She appeared to be in a kind of trench or groove, only about three feet wide. And though she was shaken by the fall, the first thing she noticed was the relief of being out of the wind, for the walls of the trench protected her. Are you hurt, Jill? Both legs broken, I shouldn't wonder. What is it you've fallen into? It's a kind of trench, or a sunken lane or something. It runs quite straight. Yes, by Jove! It looks like it runs due north. 
I wonder if it's some sort of road. I if it was, we'd be out of this infernal wind down there. <sighs> Is there a lot of snow at the bottom? Hardly any. What happens further on? It turns sharply to the right. What's around the corner? Oh, I don't know. It's awfully dark. Be careful, Jill. It's just the sort of place that might lead to a dragon's cave. And in a giant country, there might be giant earthworms or giant beetles. From what I can see, I don't think it goes anywhere much. What do you mean it doesn't lead anywhere much? It goes to another corner and then to the right. Oh, that's no good. That would be taking us back south. Take our hands. We'll pull you out again. Come on, girl. Oh, it's misery to come back to the cold. Are you still sure of those signs, Jill? What's the one we ought to be after now? Oh, bother the signs. Huh? Something about someone mentioning Aslan's name, I think. Oh. But I'm jolly well not going to give a recitation here. Wait, 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 wait. wait. That was next, was it? Aslan's name? Now, I wonder, are you right? Hmm? Got him mixed up, I shouldn't wonder. Seems to me this hill, this flat place we're on, is worth stopping to have a look at. Have you noticed oh, the way... please. Is this a time for stopping to admire the view? For goodness sake, let's get on. Oh, look! I see the lights again. More lights than before. Oh. They're windows to rooms. Half oh, yes. That's all very well. But what I was saying oh, was... Oh, stop. If... We haven't a moment to lose. Yes. Don't you remember what the lady said about their locking up early? Oh. We must get there in time. We simply must. We'll die if we shut out in a night like this. But it isn't exactly a night. Oh. Not yet. Oh, come on. The children stumbled forward on the slippery table land as quickly as their legs could carry them. The marsh wiggle followed them, still talking, but they couldn't hear him, nor wanted to. They were thinking of baths and beds and hot drinks. Hafang stood on a high crag, and in spite of its many towers, was more a huge house than a castle. Obviously the gentle giants feared no attack. There were windows in the outside wall quite close to the ground, a thing no one would have in a serious fortress. There were even odd little doors here and there, so that it would be quite easy to get in and out of the castle without going through the courtyard. It made the whole place look more friendly and less forbidding. Presently, they found themselves at the front door. Steady pace now. Don't look frightened, whatever you do. We've done the silliest thing in the world by coming at all, but now that we are here, we'd best put a bold face on it. Hello! Porter! Guests who seek lodging! I say, he may be a wet blanket, but he has plenty of pluck and cheek. Listen! The porter appeared. Jill bit her lips for fear she should scream. He was not a perfectly enormous giant. That is to say, he was taller than an apple tree, but nothing so tall as a telegraph. He had bristly red hair, 
a leather jerkin with metal plates fastened all over it so as to make a kind of male shirt, bare and hairy knees, and things like leggings covering the rest of his legs. He stooped down and goggled at Puddle Glove. And what sort of creature do you call yourself? Huh? I am... Please, the Lady of the Green Kirtle salutes the King of the Gentle Giants and has sent us two southern children and this marsh wiggle called Puddle Glum to your autumn feast, if it's quite convenient, of course. <laughs> well, come in, little people, come in. Uh, you'd best come into the lodge while I'm sending word to His Majesty. Oh, thank you. Strange, I wouldn't have expected you to have blue faces. I don't care for it myself, but I dare say you look quite nice to one another. Beetles fancy other beetles, they do say. Oh, our faces are only blue with the cold. <laughs> We're not this colour, really. Oh, well then come in and get warm. <laughs> come in, little shrimps. <laughs> Run across to the house and tell them that the Lady of the Green Kirtle has sent us two southern children for our autumn feast. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> now, listen, how can I give you drinks? You'll drown in our cups. Um, let me see. Thimbles! Thimbles! I'll get something warm for the children and uh, for you, Froggy. Something to help you cheer up. Now, if I... There you go. Is it all right, Puddle Glum? It's rather late to be thinking of precautions now that we're inside and the door is shut behind us. <laughs> smells all right, but that's nothing to go by. Better make sure. Tastes all right, too, but it might do that at the first sip. How does it go on, hmm? But is it the same all the way down? There'll be something nasty at the bottom, I shouldn't wonder. This'll be the test, you see. If I curl up, or burst, or turn into a lizard, then you'll know not to take anything of you. <laughs> oh, why, Froggy, you sure know how to put it down. I'm not a frog. I'm a, I'm a musher, a musher, a wiggle. <laughs> Sir, they're to go to the throne room at once. I'll show them the way, young'un. Oh, uh, and you better carry Froggy. He's had a drop more than is good for him. <laughs> right. There's nothing wrong with me, not a frog. <laughs> nothing wrong with me. <laughs> Whoop! Steady. I'm <laughs> a oh, respect a big a respect a big wiggle. Respect a big wiggle. <laughs> Thank you.
What have we here? Go on, Jill. Do your stuff. Not in front of all these giants. You speak. <clears throat> uh, if you please, sire, the Lady of the Green Kirtle salutes you and your queen by us and said you'd like to have us for your autumn feast. <laughs> and so we would. <laughs> what good children. Yes, indeed. Quite excellent children. <laughs> we welcome you to our court. Give me your help. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yes. Excellent. And what's that? Uh, uh, a spectacle we call. <laughs> <gasps> the horrid thing is alive. He's quite all right, Your Majesty. Really, he is. You'll like him much better when you get to know him. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh, the poor child. My lord. We do wrong to keep our guests standing. Quick, some of you take them away. Give them food and drink and uh, hot baths and a warm bed for the night. Comfort the little girl. Give her lollipops, give her dolls. Give her all that you can think of. The Queen's speech produced excellent results. For Puddle Glam and Eustace were at once picked up by gigantic gentlemen in waiting, and Jill by a gigantic maid of honor, and carried off to their rooms. Jill's room was about the size of a church and would have been rather grim if it had not had a roaring fire on the hearth and a very thick crimson carpet on the floor. The Queen's old nurse helped Jill with her bath and gave her clean, fresh, warmed clothes and then fed her a delightful meal of leek soup, hot roast turkey, steamed pudding and as much fruit as she could eat. The only annoying thing was that the nurse kept coming in and out, and every time she came in, she brought a gigantic toy with her, a huge doll bigger than Jill herself, a wooden horse on wheels about the size of an elephant, and a woolly lamb. They were crude, badly made things. Jill tumbled into the big four-poster bed. It was not a giant bed, but made for humans and fell fast asleep. The snow outside had turned to rain, which dashed against the windows of the castle. What? Oh, oh I thought I heard something. Oh, I must have been dreaming. No, I hear something. What's that noise? The rocking horse! What's happening here? It's not a rocking horse. It's a toy lion. Child. Aslan. 
the signs. The signs? Oh, oh. Well, the, the first is, um, oh, no, that's not it. Oh, I don't remember. Oh, Aslan, I don't remember. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Come with me to the window. The window? But why? Come. Eustace, Puddle Glum. Morning. It's good to see you're up and dressed. Why shouldn't I be? I slept for hours and hours. Oh. I do feel better. Don't you? I do. But Puddle Glum says he has a headache. Oh. <laughs> oh. Your window has a window seat. If we got up on that, we could see out. Oh. Good idea. Okay. Oh. oh. It looks like the rain's washed away most of the snow. And the sun is shining. Oh, my eyes. This reminds me of something. So I had a dream about looking out of a window. But I can't think of it. Hmm. Oh, 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 that's perfectly dreadful. Down below them, spread out like a map, lay the flat hilltop which they'd struggled over yesterday afternoon. But seen from the castle, it couldn't be mistaken for anything but the ruins of a gigantic city. It had been flat, as Jill now saw, because it was still on the whole paved, though in places the pavement was broken. The criss-cross banks were what was left of the walls of huge buildings, which might once have been giants, palaces and temples. One bit of wall, about 500 feet high, was still standing. It was that which Jill had thought was a cliff. The things that had looked like factory chimneys were enormous pillars, broken off at unequal heights. The fragments lay at their bases like felled trees of monstrous stone. The ledges which they'd climbed down on the north side of the hill, and also no doubt the other ledges which they climbed up on the south side, were the remaining steps of giant stairs. To crown it all, in large, dark lettering across the centre of the pavement ran the words, Under me. Under me? Oh, dear! Well, that's that. We've missed the second and third signs. Oh, it's all my fault. I, I've been given up repeating the signs every night. If I'd been thinking about them, I could have seen it was the city we were supposed to look for, even in all that snow. I'm worse. 
I did see it, or nearly. I thought it looked uncommonly like a ruined city. You're the only one who isn't to blame. You did try to make us stop. Didn't try hard enough, though, and I'd no call to be trying. Oh. I ought to have done it, as if I couldn't have stopped you two with one hand each. The truth is, we were so jolly keen on getting to this place that we weren't bothering about anything else. Oh. At least I know I was. Ever since we met that woman with the knight who didn't talk, we've been thinking of nothing else. We'd nearly forgotten about Prince Rilliant. Yeah. I shouldn't wonder if that wasn't exactly what she intended. Oh. What I don't quite understand is how we didn't see the lettering. Or could it have come there since last night? Could he, Aslan, have put it there in the night? I had such a strange dream, you see. In it, Aslan showed me the writing. Uh -huh. oh, why, witch, humps. We did see the letters. What? You were actually in one of them. Don't you remember? That chasm you fell into. It was a stroke of one of the letters. Oh. Like the bally idiots we are. We didn't realise. Huh. So it's no good, Jill. We'll have to own up. We've only got four signs to go by. And we've muffed the first three. You mean I have? I've spoiled everything since you brought me here. All the same, I'm frightfully sorry and all that. But what are the signs? Under me, doesn't seem to make much sense. Oh, yes, it does. It means we've got to look for the prince under that city. But how can we? Ah, that's the question. How can we now? No doubt if we'd had our minds on our job when we were at the ruinous city, we'd have been shown how, found a little door or a cave or a tunnel, met someone to help us. Might even have been, you never know, Aslan himself. We'd have got down under those paving stones somehow or other. Aslan's instructions always work. There are no exceptions. But how to do it now? Ah. That's another matter. Well, we should just have to go back, I suppose. Oh, easy, isn't it? We might try opening that door to begin with. We could never reach the handle. Quite. Or turn it if we could. Uh. Well, can't we ask them to let us out? On what pretense? We cannot tell the giants our real business? Escape at night? <laughs> Once the doors to our rooms are closed, we're as good as prisoners until morning. We could ask them to leave our doors open. That might arouse suspicions. Our only chance is to try and sneak away by daylight. Mightn't there be an hour in the afternoon when most of the giants are busy at work or asleep? And if we could steal down into the kitchen, mightn't there be a back door open? But what if we're caught? <sighs> then we can pretend that we're simply having a look around. Ah, good lad. It's hardly what I call a chance, but it's all the chance we're likely to get. Mm. We must put them off their guard, though. We must pretend we love being here and are longing for this autumn feast. Yeah, the feast is tomorrow night. Mm. I heard one of the giants say so. I see. We must pretend to be awfully excited about it and keep on asking questions. They think we're absolute infants anyway, which will make it easier. Cheerful. That's what we've got to be. Cheerful. As if we hadn't a care in the world. Frolicsome. Now, you two youngsters haven't always got very high spirits, I've noticed. You must watch me and do as I do. All right. Cheerful's the word. Now, if we could only get someone to open this door, 
While we're fooling around and being cheerful, we've got to find out all we can about this castle. All I have to do is shout for the old nurse and she comes running. <laughs> then shout away. The king, the queen and the entire court were setting out on a hunt, so Jill, Eustace and Puddlebum made it a point to see them off and to show how cheerful they were. Jill rushed over to the queen who rested on a litter, carried on the shoulders of six young giants and said, Oh please, you're not going away are you? You will come back. Yes my dear. I'll be back tonight. Oh, good. How lovely. And we may come to the feast tomorrow night, may we? We're so longing for tomorrow night. And we do love being here. And while you're out, may we run over the whole castle and see everything. Oh, do say yes. <laughs> yes, yes, of course you may. And now, to the hunt. Come along now, bring the dog. The others admitted afterwards that Jill had been wonderful that day. As soon as the king and the rest of the hunting party had set off, she began making a tour of the whole castle and asking questions in such an innocent, babyish way that no one could suspect her of any secret design. She chatted to the grooms, the porters, the housemaids, the ladies-in-waiting, and the elderly giant lords whose hunting days were past. She made friends with the cook and discovered the all-important fact that there was a scullery door which let you out through the outer wall so you didn't have to cross the courtyard or pass the great gatehouse. Among the ladies, she asked questions about the great feast, feigning hopes that she would be allowed to dress up and stay up late and perhaps dance with a very, very small giant. And all the giantesses said she was a perfect little darling, and some of them dabbed their eyes with enormous handkerchiefs as if they were going to cry. But at lunchtime, something happened which made all three of them more anxious than ever to leave the castle. They had lunch in the great hall at a little table of their own near the fireplace. At a bigger table about 20 yards away, half a dozen old giants were lunching. Their conversation was so noisy and so high up in the air that the children took no more notice of it than you would of traffic noises in the street. They were all eating cold venison, a kind of food Jill had never tasted before, and she was liking it. Suddenly, Puddleglum turned to them, and his face had gone so pale that you could see the paleness under the natural muddiness of his complexion. Don't eat another bite. What's wrong? Didn't you hear what those giants were saying? No. One said, that's a nice tender haunch of venison. Then the other said, then that stag was a liar. Why, said the first one. The other replied, they say that when he was caught, he said, don't kill me, I'm tough. You won't like me. What? We've been eating a talking stag. Yes. I don't understand. I mean, I'm sorry for the stag, but why do you both look so sick? I've had friends, one in particular, who was a talking beast. 
It's like murder. Neither of you understand fully, I'm afraid. I am Narnian born, and to eat a talking beast will be the same as eating a, a baby. Oh. oh, he brought the anger of Aslan on us. That's what comes of not attending to the signs. We're under a curse, I expect. If it was allowed, it would be the best we could do to take these knives and drive them into our own hearts. As soon as it's safe, let's get out of this hall. Oh. It was now drawing near to that time of day on which their hopes of escape depended, and all became nervous. They hung about in passages and waited for things to become quiet. The giants in the hall sat around for a dreadfully long time after the meal was over. Jill, Eustace and Puddleglum casually walked down to the kitchen. But there were still plenty of giants there, or at least in the scullery, washing up and putting things away. It was agonizing, waiting till these finished their jobs and one by one wiped their hands and went away. At last, only one old giantess pottered about and pottered about until at last the three of them realized with horror that she didn't intend to go away. Finally, she made herself a cup of tea and sat down on one chair and put her feet up on another. She dozed off. The door is standing wide open. Let's go. Don't try it till we're sure she's really asleep. Otherwise, it'll spoil everything. The giantess was fidgety, brushing away a fly one minute or moving to adjust her position the next. I can't bear this. To distract her mind, Jill began looking about her. Just in front of her was a clean, wide table with two pie dishes on it and an open book. They were giant pie dishes, of course, and Jill thought she could lie down comfortably in one of them. Then she climbed up on the bench beside the table to look at the book. She saw on one page a recipe for cooking mallard ducks. What are you doing? Eustace, it's a cookery book. So? I think you should see this. Eustace and Puddleglum climbed up onto the bench and saw what had startled Jill so badly. The cookery book was arranged alphabetically, and the entry after the mallard duck said, Man. This elegant little biped has long been valued as a delicacy. It forms a traditional part of the autumn feast and is served between the fish and the meat. They mean to eat us. Oh, dear. While Eustace was still reading about how to cook men, Puddleglum pointed to the next entry below it. It said, Marsh Wiggle. Some authorities reject this animal altogether as unfit for giant's consumption oh. because of its stringy consistency and muddy flavor. What? The flavor can, however, be greatly reduced yeah. if... Look, the giant is sound asleep. Yeah. If we're going to escape, we'd better do it now. Right. Yes. <laughs> Oh. 
Let's hope there's no one looking out of the windows. Steady, steady. Don't look back. Don't walk too quickly. Whatever you do, don't run. Look as if we were just taking a stroll, that's all. And then if anyone sees us, it might just possibly not bother. The moment we look like people running away, we're done. It's such a long way to the ruined city and I'm freezing already. Oh, oh what's that? Hunting Horn! The King's party is returning, oh. but don't run! Even now, not until I give the word. After them! After them! Or we'll have no man pies tomorrow! They've seen us! Run! There was no mistaking the danger now. The giants were chasing after the three of them. Jill gathered up her long skirt, horrible things for running it, and ran as hard as she could. They ran up the stony slope which led to the lowest step of the giant stairway. She had no idea what they would do when they got there, but she didn't think about that. She was like a hunted animal. Puddle Plum was furthest ahead. As he came to the lowest step, he stopped, looked a little to his right, and all of a sudden darted into a little hole or crevice at the bottom of it. His long legs disappearing into it looked very like those of a spider. Eustace hesitated and then vanished after him. Jill, breathless and reeling, came to the place about a minute later and threw herself in. Before the dogs were baying and yelping at the cave mouth, they had it pretty well filled. And now, of course, there was no light at all. Further in, quick! But I can't see. Let's all hold hands. You're in the lead, Puddle Glam. I think we can stand up. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if we put our heads into a spider's web oh. or a bat. Ready? I'll move ahead and mind the loose stones underfoot. Mind the wall, too. I'll try to the right. The question is whether taking one thing with another, it wouldn't be better to go back, if we can, mm. and give those giants a treat at that feast oh. of theirs, instead of losing our way in the gaps of the hill, where ten to one there's dragons and deep holes and gases and water. Is everyone all right? <laughs> Broken bones. Puddle glum? The same. Good. Well, we can never get back up there again. Have you noticed how warm it is? That means we're a long way down. Might be nearly a mile. Let's have some light. Oh, my tinderbox is gone. I'm terribly thirsty. Oh. What brings you here? Who's there? 
Creatures of the overworld, I am the warden of the marches of the underland. And with me stand a hundred earthmen in arms. Tell me quickly who you are and what is your errand in the deep realm. What? Oh, uh, we fell down by accident. Many fall down. And few return to the sunlit lands. Oh. Make ready now to come with me to the queen of the deep realm. What does she want with us? I do not know. Her will is not to be questioned, but obeyed. Oh. Oh. There was a noise, like a soft explosion. And immediately a cold light, grey with a little blue in it, flooded the cavern. All hope that the speaker had been idly boasting when he spoke of his hundred armed followers died at once. Jill found herself blinking and staring at a dense crowd. They were of all sizes, from little gnomes barely a foot high to stately figures taller than men. All carried three-pronged spears in their hands and all were dreadfully pale and all stood still as statues. Apart from that, they were very different. Some had tails and wore great beards, and others had very round, smooth faces, big as pumpkins. There were long, pointed noses and long, soft noses like small trunks and great blobby noses. Several had single horns in the middle of their foreheads. But in one respect, they were all alike. Every face in the whole hundred was as sad as a face could be. They were so sad that after the first glance, Jill almost forgot to be afraid of them. She felt she would like to cheer them up. Well, this is just what I needed. If these chaps don't teach me to take a serious view of life, I don't know what will. Look at that fellow with the walrus moustache. Or that one with the... Now, march. The cold light came from a large ball on the top of a long pole, and the tallest of the gnomes carried this at the head of the procession. By its cheerless rays, they could see that they were in a natural cavern. The walls and roof were knobbed, twisted and gashed into a thousand fantastic shapes, and the stony floor sloped downward as they proceeded. When as they went on, the cave got lower and narrower, and when at last the light bearers stood aside, and the gnomes one by one stooped down and stepped into a little dark crack and disappeared, Jill said, I, I can't go in there, Eustace. What do you mean? I, I get claustrophobic. I can't stand small tight places like that. I can't go on. I, I won't. Oh, steady, steady, Jill. Those big fellas wouldn't be crawling in there if it didn't get wider later on. Hmm? And there's one thing about being underground. We shan't get any rain. Oh, you don't understand. I can't. Think how I felt on that cliff, Jill. You go first, Puddleglum, uh, and I'll come after her. That's right. Now... Uh, uh, you keep a grip of my heels, Jill, and Eustace will hold on to yours. Yes. Then we'll all be comfortable. Uh, comfortable? Oh. 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 Jill got down 
and they crawled on their elbows. It was a nasty place. You had to go flat on your face for what seemed like half an hour, though it may really have been only five minutes. It was hot. Jill felt she was being smothered. But at last, a dim light showed ahead. The tunnel grew wider and higher, and they came out hot, dirty and shaken into a cave so large that it scarcely seemed like a cave at all. It was full of a dim, drowsy radiance. The floor was soft with some kind of moss, and out of this grew many strange shapes, branched and tall like trees, but flabby like mushrooms. Across this mild, soft, sleepy place, Onward. they were now made to march. They passed dozens of strange animals lying on the turf, either dead or asleep. Jill couldn't tell which. What are they? Dragons? Bats? I don't know. Uh, Warden, <clears throat> do they grow here? Uh, no. They are all beasts that have found their way down by chasms and caves. Out of the overland, into the deep realm. <sighs> Many come down, and few return to the sunlit lands. <sighs> it is said that they will all wake at the end of the world. When they had walked for several miles, they came to a wall of rock, and in it a low archway leading into another cavern. It brought them to a smaller cave, long and narrow, about the shape and size of a cathedral. And here, filling almost the whole length of it, lay an enormous man, fast asleep. He was far bigger than any of the giants, and his face was not like a giant's, but noble and beautiful. His breast rose and fell gently under the snowy beard which covered him to the waist. A pure silver light rested upon him. Who's that? That is old father Time, who was once a king in the Overland, and now he is sunk down into the deep realm and lies dreaming of all the things that are done in the upper world. Many sink down, and few return to the sunlit lands. They say he will wake at the end of the world. And out of that cave, they passed into another, and then another, and another, always going downhill, with each cave being lower than the last. Then they passed into a cave so wide and dark that they could see nothing of it except that right in front of them a strip of pale sand ran down into still water. An inland sea and a ship. There, beside a little jetty, lay a ship without mast or sail, but with many oars. Get in. They were made to go on board and led forward to the bows where there was a clear space in front of the rowers' benches and a seat running round inside the bulwarks. One thing I'd like to know 
is whether anyone from our world, from up top I mean, has ever done this trip before. <sighs> Many have taken the ship at the Pale Beaches. A few, few return to the Sunlit Lands. You needn't say it again. You are a chap of one idea, aren't you? The children huddled close together on each side of Paddleglow. Looking ahead, they could see nothing but smooth, dark water fading into absolute blackness. Whatever will become of us? Now, don't you let your spirits down, Jill. There's one thing you've got to remember. We're back on the right lines, hmm? We were to go under the ruined city, and we are under it. We're following the instructions again. The gnomes rode, and the children gradually fell asleep. But when they woke, everything was just the same. How often they woke and slept and ate and slept again, none of them could ever remember. At last, they saw lights ahead, dreary lights like that of their own lantern. Then quite suddenly, one of these lights came close, and they saw that they were passing another ship. After that, they met several ships. Then, staring till their eyes hurt, they saw that some of the lights ahead were shining on what looked like wharfs, towers, walls, and moving crowds. Look at that. By Jove, it's a city. It's an odd city, though. The lights are so few and far apart. They'd hardly do for cottages, let alone a city. Still, there's a lot of activity. All those gnomes loading and unloading the ships, crowded in the streets. But they're so quiet. Where's the normal city noise? Make fast the ship! Their ship was brought alongside a quay and made fast. The three travelers were taken ashore and marched up into the city. Eventually they came to what appeared to be a great castle, though few of the windows in it were lighted. Here they were taken in and made to cross a courtyard and climb many staircases. This brought them in the end to a big dimly lit room, but in one corner of it there was an archway filled with a quite different sort of light, the honest yellowish warm light of such a lamp as humans use. What showed by this light inside the archway was the foot of a staircase which wound upward between walls of stone. Two earthmen stood, one on each side of the arch, like sentries. <sighs> Many sink down to the underworld. And few return to the sunlit lands. There they go again. I have brought these overlanders to the Queen. The Queen's grace is gone from hence on a great affair. We'd best keep these top dwellers in straight prison till her homecoming. Few return to sunlit lands. <laughs> Where do they go then? What coil are you keeping down there, Malagatharum? Overworlders. Overworlders? Ha! Bring them up to me and that presently. Please it, your highness, to remember... It pleases my highness to be principally obeyed, old Matara. 
Bring them up. <sighs> Follow me. With every step up the staircase, the light increased. There were rich tapestries hanging on the walls. The lamplight shone golden through thin curtains at the staircase head. The earthmen parted the curtains and stood aside. The three passed in. They were in a beautiful room with a bright fire on a clean hearth and red wine and cut glass sparkling on the table. A young man with fair hair rose to greet them. He was dressed in black. He was handsome and looked both bold and kind, though there was something about his face that didn't seem quite right. Welcome, overworlders. Thank you. But stay a moment, I cry you mercy. I have seen you two fair children and this, your strange governor, before. Was it not you three that met me by the bridge on the borders of Ettins Moor when I rode there by my lady's side? Oh, you were the Black Knight who never spoke. And was that lady the Queen of Underland? Because if she was, I think she was jolly mean to send us off to a castle of giants who intended to eat us. Yeah. What harm had we ever done her? If you were not so young a warrior boy, you and I must have fought to the death on this quarrel. I can hear no words against my lady's honour. But of this you may be assured, that whatever she said to you, she said of good intent. You do not know her. She is the epitome of all virtues, of truth, mercy, constancy, gentleness, courage, and the rest. Her kindness to me alone, who can in no way reward her, would make an admirable history. But you shall know and love her hereafter. Meanwhile, what is your errand in the Deep Lands? We're trying to find Prince Rillian of Narnia. Jill! Oh, I, I mean... You I... promised. No, I'm sorry. Rillian? Narnia? What land is that? I have never heard the name. It must be a thousand leagues from those parts of the overworld that I know. But it was a strange fantasy that brought you seeking this... How do you call him? Billion? Trillion? In my lady's realm. Indeed, to my certain knowledge, there is no such man here. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, um, but, but we'd been told to look for a message on the stones of the ruinous city, and we saw the words, under me. You were the more deceived. Those words meant nothing to your purpose. Had you but asked my lady, she could have given you better counsel. For those words are all that is left of a longer script, which in ancient times, as she well remembers, expressed this verse. Though under earth and throneless now I be, yet while I lived, all earth was under me. From which it is plain that some great king of the ancient giants who lies buried there caused this boast to be cut in a stone over his sepulchre. Though the breaking up of some stones and the carrying away of others for new buildings and the filling up of cuts with rubble has left only two words that can still be read. Is it not the merriest jest in the world that you should have thought they were written to you? <laughs> oh. oh no, did we get it wrong again? Don't you mind him. There are, are no accidents. 
Our guide is Aslan, and he was there when the giant king caused the letters to be cut, and he knew already all things that would come of them, including this. This guide of yours must be a long liver, friend. <laughs> yes, and it seems to me, sir, that this lady of yours must be a long liver, too, if she remembers the verse as it was when they first cut it. Very shrewd, Frogface. <laughs> and you have hit the truth. She is of divine race and knows neither age nor death. I am the more thankful to her for all her infinite bounty to such a poor mortal wretch as I. For you must know, sirs, I am a man under most strange afflictions, mm. and none but the Queen's grace would have had patience with me. Patience, said I, but it goes far beyond that. She has promised me a great kingdom in Overland, and when I am king, her own most gracious hand in marriage. But the tale is too long for you to hear hungry and standing. Malagotherum, bring wine and Updweller's food for my guests. Please you, be seated, gentlemen. Little maiden, sit in this chair. You shall hear it all. You must understand, friends, that I know nothing of who I was and whence I came into this dark world. I remember no time when I was not dwelling as now at the court of this all but heavenly queen. But my thought is that she saved me from some evil enchantment and brought me hither of her exceeding bounty. And this seems to me the likelier because even now I am bound by a spell from which my lady alone can free me. Every night there comes an hour when my mind is most horribly changed and after my mind, my body. For first I become furious and wild and would rush upon my dearest friends to kill them if I were not bound. And soon after that, I turn into the likeness of a great serpent, hungry and fierce and deadly. So they tell me, and they certainly speak the truth, for my lady says the same. I myself know nothing of it. For when my hour is past, I awake, forgetful of all that vile fit and my proper shape and sound mind, saving that I am somewhat wearied. Now the Queen's Majesty knows by her art that I shall be freed from this enchantment when once she has made me king of a land in the overworld and set its crown upon my head. The land has already chosen, and the very place of our breaking out. Her earthmen have worked day and night, digging away beneath it, and have now gone so far and so high that they tunnel not a score of feet beneath the very grass on which the updwellers of that country walk. It will be very soon now that those uplanders' fate will come upon them. She herself is at the diggings tonight, and I expect a message to go to her. Then the thin roof of earth which still keeps me from my kingdom will be broken through, and with her to guide me and a thousand earthmen at my back, I shall ride forth in arms, fall suddenly on our enemies, slay their chief men, cast down their strong places, and doubtless be their crowned king within four and twenty hours. It's a bit of rough luck on them, isn't it? Thou art a lad of wondrous quick working wit. For on my honor, I had never thought of it so before, and I see your meaning. Hmm. <laughs> but fie on gravity! 
Is it not the most comical and ridiculous thing in the world to think of them all going about their business and never dreaming that under their peaceful fields and floors, only a fathom down, there is a great army ready to break out upon them like a fountain? And they never have suspected. Why, they themselves, when once the first smart of their defeat is over, can hardly choose but laugh at the thought. I don't think it's funny at all. I think you'll be a wicked tyrant. What? Is our little maid a deep politician? But never fear, sweetheart. In ruling that land, I shall do all by the counsel of my lady, who will then be my queen too. Her word shall be my law, even as my word will be law to the people we have conquered. And do you think you'll be happy taking orders from her for the rest of your life? I am well content to live by her word, who has already saved me from a thousand dangers. No mother has taken pains more tenderly for her child than the Queen's grace has for me. Why, look you, amid all her cares and business, she rideth out with me in the overworld many a time and oft to accustom my eyes to the sunlight. And then I must go fully armed and with visor down, so that no man may see my face, and I must speak to no one, for she has found out, by art magical, that this would hinder my deliverance from the grievous enchantment I lie under. Is not that a lady worthy of a man's whole worship? Oh, yes. Sounds like a very nice lady indeed. But, friends, my hour is now very near. I am ashamed that you should see me, yet I dread being left alone. They will come in presently and bind me hand and foot to yonder chair. Alas, so it must be. For in my fury, they tell me, I would destroy all that I could reach. I say, I'm awfully sorry about your enchantment, of course. But what will those fellows do with us when they come to bind you? They talked of putting us in prison, and we don't like all those dark places very much. We'd much rather stay here till you're uh, better, if we may. It is well thought of. By custom, none but the Queen herself remains with me in my evil hour. Such is her tender care for my honour that she would not willingly suffer any ears but her own to hear the words I utter in that frenzy. But I could not easily persuade my attendant gnomes that you should be left with me. And I think I hear their soft feet even now upon the stairs. Oh. Go through yonder door. It leads into my other apartments. Yes. And there, either await my coming when they have unbound me, or, if you will, return and sit with me in my ravings. All right. We'll go. <laughs> You'll know when to return. Well, what do we think? I think he's a self-centred pig. Frankly, I think he's a big baby, hanging on that woman's apron strings. I'd like to know what game that lady is really playing, which is why I think we must go back to watch whatever enchantment it is he suffers. Mm, I'd rather not see it. Mm, I'm feeling quite curious about it. I believe we have no choice. Mm. We may pick up some information and we need all we can get. I am sure that queen is a witch and an enemy, and those earthmen would knock us on the head as soon as look at us. <sighs> There's a stronger smell of danger and lies and magic and treason about this land than I've ever smelled before. We need to keep our eyes and ears open. Mm. Yes. Then let's go back. But quietly. We don't want to get caught by any of those Earthmen. Mm -hmm. 
believe it's clear. Oh, and there's our friend. What's he doing? Just as he said. They've bound him completely to a chair. It's an odd-looking chair at mm. that. Seems like solid silver. Shall we go in? Mm, I don't know. I can't be sure whether he's having his fit or not. Come in, friends. The fit is not yet upon me. But make no noise, for I told that prying Chamberlain that you were in bed. Now, I can feel it coming. Quick, listen while I am master of myself. When the fit is upon me, it well may be that I shall beg and implore you with entreaties and threatenings to loosen my bonds. They say I do. I shall call upon you by all that is most dear and dreadful, but do not listen to me. Harden your hearts and stop your ears, for while I am bound, you are safe. But if once I were up and out of this chair, then first would come my fury, and after that, the change into a loathsome serpent. Uh, there's no fear of our loosing you. Uh, we've no wish to meet wild men or serpents either. I should think not. All the same. Be on your guard. I've been told I can be quite cunning once I get started. Do you trust one another? Mm. Do you promise that whatever I say, you won't touch my cords? Whatever you say, we will not touch those cords. Rather, there's nothing he'll say that'll make me change my mind. <coughs> oh. Something's happening. Oh, I'm not sure I want to see this. Oh, enchantments! Enchantments! The heavy tangled cold, clammy web of evil magic, buried alive, dragged down under the earth, down into the sooty blackness. How many years is it? Have I lived ten years or a thousand years in the pit? Maggot men all around me. Oh, have mercy. Let me out. Let me go back. Let me feel the wind and see the sky. There used to be a little pool. When you look down into it, you could see all the trees growing upside down in the water, all green, and below them, deep, very deep blue sky. Uh. Oh dear. Quick. I am sane now. Every night I am sane. If only I could get out of this enchanted chair, it would last. I should be a man again. But every night they bind me, and so every night my chance is gone. But you are not my enemies. I am not your prisoner. Quick, cut these cords. Oh, oh dear. Puddle glum. Stand fast. Steady, Eustace. Jill. I beseech you to hear me. Have they told oh. you that if I am released from this chair, I shall kill you and become a serpent? I see by your faces that they have. It's a lie. It is at this hour that I am in my right mind. It's all the rest of the day oh. that I'm enchanted. You are not earthmen or witches. Why should you be on their side? Of your courtesy, cut my bonds. Don't listen to him. Oh, but he looks so sane now. Steady, children, oh. steady. Oh, you have hearts of stone. Believe me, you look upon a wretch who has suffered almost more than any mortal can bear. What wrong have I ever done you that you should side with my enemies to keep me in such miseries? And the minutes are slipping past. Now you can save me. When this hour has passed, I shall be witless again, the toy and lapdog, nay, more likely the pawn and tool of the most devilish sorceress that ever planned the woe of men. Oh. And this night, of all nights, when she is away, you take from me a chance that may never come again. Oh, this is dreadful. I do wish we'd stayed away till it was over. Steady! Let me go, I say. 
Give me my sword! My sword! Once I am free, I shall take such revenge on the Earthmen that Underland will talk of it for a thousand years! Now the frenzy's beginning. I hope those knots are all right. Yes, he'd have twice his natural strength if he got free now. I'm not that clever with my sword. He'd get us both, I shouldn't wonder, and then Jill on her own would be left to tackle the snake. Good. Beware. Beware. One night I did break them. But the witch was there that time. You will not have her to help you tonight. Free me now and I am your friend. I'm your mortal enemy otherwise. Cunning, isn't he? Once and for all, I adjure you to set me free. By all fears and all loves, by the bright skies of Overland, by the great Aslan himself, I charge you. Oh, he spoke the name of Aslan. It's the sign. It was the words of the sign. What are we to do? Set me free. But we promised we wouldn't. But he called upon the name. His name. Oh, bother. What was the point of learning the signs if we weren't going to obey them? (laughs) Could Aslan have really meant for us to unbind anyone? Even a lunatic who asked it in his name? Yes. Perhaps he doesn't know what he's saying. Don't you understand? This is the only time I know what I'm saying. The Queen of the Underworld might have known about the signs and made him learn the name simply to entrap us. (laughs) What are you talking? about what signs I'm begging you oh, to lo- do be quiet while we try to think but our time is growing short if only we knew I think we do know do you think everything will come out right if we do untie him yes yes aren't you listening Aslan didn't tell Jill what would happen he only told her what to do That fellow will be the death of us once he's up, I shouldn't wonder. But that doesn't let us off following the sign. All right, let's get it over with. Come on, Eustace. Sword's drawn. We'll cut him loose. Right. In the name of Aslan. Yes, yes, in the name of Aslan. (laughs) My sword. Where is my sword? There. What are you going to do? Destroy this evil chair, this vile engine of sorcery. Never again shall your mistress use you for another victim. Good. Now, where am I? And who are you, my deliverers? Do I see before me a Marshwiggle? A real, live, honest Narnian Marshwiggle? So you have heard of Narnia after all? Had I forgotten it when I was under the spell? Well, that and all other bedevilments are now over. You may well believe that I know Narnia, for I am Rillian, Prince of Narnia, and Caspian the Great King is my father. We have come hither for no other end than to seek you. Yes. Puddledrum the Marsh Wiggle at your service. And you? Uh, we were sent by Aslan himself from beyond the world's end to seek your highness. I'm Eustace, who sailed with your father Caspian to the island of Romando. And I am Jill, your highness. I owe all three of you a greater debt than I can ever pay. But 
My father, is he yet alive? Ah. He sailed east again before we left Narnia, my lord. But your highness must consider that the king is very old. It is ten to one. His majesty must die on the voyage. He is old, you say? How long, then, have I been in the power of the witch? It is more than ten years since your highness was lost in the woods at the north side of Narnia. Ten years. Oh. <laughs> but yes, I believe you. For now that I am myself, I can remember that enchanted life, though while I was enchanted I could not remember my true self. And now, fair friends, but wait, I hear them coming. Oh. Should we lock the door? No. I have a better thought than that. What? I will fool these earthmen if Aslan gives me the wit. Oh. Take your cue from me. What are you going to do? I will open the door. Come in! Come in! Two earthmen entered. But instead of advancing into the room, they placed themselves on each side of the door and bowed deeply. They were followed immediately by the last person anyone had expected or wished to see. The Lady of the Green Kirtle, the Queen of the Underland, the witch herself. The Lady turned very white as she took in the whole situation. The three strangers, the silver chair destroyed, and the prince free with his sword in his hand. But Jill thought it was the sort of whiteness that comes over some people's faces, not when they're frightened, but when they are angry. Gods, leave us, and let none disturb us till I call, on pain of death. Yes, lady. How now, my lord prince? Has your nightly fit not yet come upon you? Or is it over so soon? Why stand you here unbound? Who are these aliens? And is it they who have destroyed the silver chair which was your only safety? Madam, there will be no more need of that chair. And you, who have told me a hundred times how deeply you pitied me for the sorceries by which I was bound, will doubtless hear with joy that they are now ended forever. There was, it seems, some small error in your ladyship's way of treating them. These, my true friends, have delivered me. I am now in my right mind, and there are two things I will say to you. First, as for your ladyship's design of putting me at the head of an army of earthmen so that I may break out into the overworld and there, by main force, make myself king over some nation that never did me wrong, murdering their natural lords and holding their throne as a bloody and foreign tyrant. Now that I know myself, I do utterly abhor and renounce it as plain villainy. Oh. And second, I am the king's son of Narnia, Rillian, the only child of Caspian, tenth of that name, whom some call Caspian the Seafarer. Therefore, madam, it is my purpose, as it is also my duty, to depart suddenly from your highness's court into my own country. Please it you to grant me and my friends safe conduct and a guide through your dark realm. Narnia. 
Narnia. I have often heard your lordship utter that name in your ravings. Dear prince, you are very sick. Allow me to help you. The witch moved gently across the room. When she'd come to a little ark set in the wall not far from the fireplace, she opened it and took out first a handful of green powder. This she threw on the fire. It didn't blaze much, but a very sweet and drowsy smell came from it. And all through the conversation that followed, that smell grew stronger and filled the room and made it harder to think. Yes, this will clear your mind. There is no land called Narnia. Yes, there is though, ma'am. You see, I happen to have lived there all my life. Indeed. If you'll pardon me while I play a little music, it helps to soothe the nerves, I find. This is all quite a shock. There. Now, as you were saying, from what country do you come? Up there. Where? Uh, I don't know exactly where. <laughs> you point upwards. Is there a country up among the stones and mortar of the roof? Uh, no, it's in overworld. And what, pray, is this, uh, how do you call it, overworld? Oh, don't be so silly. As if you didn't know. It's up above. Up where you can see the sky, and the sun, and the stars. Why, you've been there yourself. We met you there. <laughs> I cry you mercy, little brother. I have no memory of that meeting. But we often meet our friends in strange places when we dream. And unless all dreamed alike, you must not ask them to remember it. Madam, I have already told your grace that I am the king's son of Narnia. And shalt be, dear friend, the king of many imagined lands in thy fancies. We've been there too. And thou art Queen of Narnia, too, I doubt not, pretty one. I'm nothing of the sort. We come from another world. <laughs> Why, this is a prettier game than the other. Uh, tell us, little maid, where is this other world? What ships and chariots go between it and ours? Well, <laughs> I don't know exactly. But somehow... Somehow? What? Somehow, it seems like a dream now. That's because it is a dream. It's all a dream. Yes, I suppose it was all a dream. There never was such a world. There never was such a world. No, there never was such a world. There never was such a world, but mine. There never was such a world but, but yours. Uh, I don't know rightly what you all mean 
by a world. But you can play that fiddle till your fingers drop off and still you won't make me forget Narnia and the whole overworld too. We'll never see it again, I shouldn't wonder. You may have blotted it out and turned it dark like this for all I know. Nothing more likely. But I know <laughs> I was there once. I've seen the sky full of stars. I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea of a morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And I've seen him up in the midday sky when I couldn't look at him for brightness. <laughs> Why, there it is. Of course. The blessing of Aslan be upon this honest Marshwiggle. We have all been dreaming these last few minutes. How could we have forgotten it? Of course we've all seen the sun. By Jove, so we have. Good for you, Puddle Glum. You're the only one of us with any sense. What is this sun that you all speak of? Do you mean anything by the word? Yes, we jolly well do. Can you tell me what it's like? Do you see that lamp? It is round and yellow and gives light to the whole room and hangs, moreover, from the roof. Now, that thing which we call the sun is like the lamp, only far greater and brighter. It gives light to the whole overworld and hangs in the sky. Hangs from what, my lord? Well... <laughs> you see, when you try to think out clearly what this sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream, and there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale, a children's story. Yes, I see now. It must be so. There is no sun. Do you understand? There is no sun. There is no sun. You are right. There is no sun. No, there never was a sun. But, but there is something else. Something on the tip of my tongue. Oh. There's Aslan. Aslan. What a pretty name. Yes. What does it mean? He is the great lion who called us out of our world and sent us into this to find Prince Rillian. Do tell me, what is a lion? Oh, hang it all. Don't you know? How can we describe it to her? Have, have you ever seen a cat? Surely. I love cats. Well, a lion's a little bit... only a little bit, mind you. Like a huge cat with a mane. Uh, at least, not like a horse's mane, you know. Oh. It's more like, oh, how to describe it, I don't know. But it's yellow <laughs> and terrifically strong. Oh, I see that we shall do no better with your lion than we did with your son. You have seen lamps, so you imagined a bigger and better lamp and called it the sun. You've seen cats, and now you want a bigger and better cat, and it's to be called a lion. Well, tis pretty make-believe, though to say truth, it would suit you all better if you were younger. And look how you can put nothing into your make-believe without copying it from the real world. This world of mine, which is the only world. But even you children are too old for such play. Put away these childish tricks. I have work for you all in the real world. There is no Narnia. 
No overworld, no sun, no sky, no us. No. And now to bed all, and let us begin a wise life tomorrow. To bed, to sleep, deep sleep, soft pillows, sleep without foolish dreams. The children stood with their heads hung down, their cheeks flushed, their eyes half closed, the strength all gone from them. The enchantment was almost complete. But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. Then he did a very brave thing which he knew would hurt him. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth. The sweet, heavy smell grew very much less, replaced by the smell of burnt marsh wiggle, which is not at all an enchanting smell. What are you doing? Dare to touch my fire again, mud filth, and I'll turn the blood to fire inside your veins. One word. All you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I could on it. So I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one thing more to be said even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. <laughs> and that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which beats your real world to pieces. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it, I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnian! So, thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I shouldn't think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. Yes, yes, yes that's right. Hooray for good old Puddle yes. Hooray. <laughs> Watch out! Look to the witch! The instrument dropped from the witch's hands. Her arms appeared to be fastened to her sides. Her legs were intertwined with each other and her feet had disappeared. 
The long green train of her skirt thickened and grew solid and seemed to be all one piece with the writhing green pillar of her interlocked legs. And that writhing green pillar was curving and swaying as if it had no joints. Her head was thrown far back. And while her nose grew longer and longer, every other part of her face seemed to disappear, except her eyes. Huge, flaming eyes they were now, without brows or lashes. All this takes time to say, but it happened so quickly that there was only just time to see it, no time to do anything about it. The witch had become a great serpent, green as poison, thick as Jill's waist. It flung two or three coils of its loathsome body round the prince's legs. Quick as lightning, another great loop darted round, intending to pinion his sword arm to his side. But the prince was just in time. He raised his arms and got them clear. The living knot closed only round his chest, ready to crack his ribs like firewood when it drew tight. The prince caught the preacher's neck in his left hand, trying to squeeze it till it choked. This held its face about five inches from his own. The forked tongue flicked horribly in and out, but couldn't reach him. With his right hand, he drew back his sword for the strongest blow he could give. Meanwhile, Eustace and Puddlebum had drawn their weapons and rushed to his aid. With repeated blows, they cut off the serpent's head. Gentlemen, I thank you. My royal mother is avenged. This is undoubtedly the same serpent that I pursued in vain by the fountain in the forest of Narnia so many years ago. All these years I have been the slave of my mother's slayer. Yet I am glad, gentlemen, that the foul witch took to her serpent form at the last. It would not have suited well either with my heart or with my honor to have slain a woman. I think I need to sit down. Damsel, you are of a high courage, and therefore I doubt not that you come of a noble blood in your own world. But come, friends. Here is some refreshment left. Let us drink, see to the Marsh Wiggle's burnt foot, and see to our plans. A jolly good idea, sir. Don't go to any trouble on my account. It's no trouble at all. I have a couple of clean shirts which will tear into strips, then wrap your foot. I'm afraid it's the best I can do. How are we supposed to escape? Tear one of these, will you, Eustace? Oh, of course. There are quite a lot of outlets by which one could get to the surface. I've been taken out through most of them at one time or another, but never alone. Unfortunately, we always reached the outlets by going in a ship across the Sunless Sea. So the Earthmen would think it rather suspicious if you went down to the harbour without the witch and with three strangers and simply ordered a ship? Most likely. On the other hand, the new outlet, the one for the invasion of the overworld, is on this side of the sea and only a few miles away. It was nearly finished, with only a few feet of earth dividing the diggings from the outer air. It is even possible that it has been finished. Perhaps the witch had come back to tell me that news and to start the attack.
Can we get there without being stopped? And won't the diggings be guarded? These are our difficulties. How are the bandages, Puddleglum? Oh, they'll do, sire, though I shouldn't wonder if my foot becomes infected. I say, what's that noise? I've been wondering that for some time. Voices? By the lion, it seems this silent land has found a tongue at last. Let's have a look out the window. I've never seen the gnomes run like that. Or shout. Come to think of it, I never heard one of the rascals so much as speak with a loud voice in all the weary years of my bondage. Some new devilry, I don't doubt. What is that red light over there? Is something on fire? If you ask me, I should say that was the central fires of the Earth breaking out to make a new volcano. We'll be in the middle of it, I shouldn't wonder. Look at that ship. Why is it coming on so quickly? No one's rowing it. Look. Look. The ship has risen out of the harbour. Oh. It is in the street. Oh. Look, all the ships are driving into the city. Oh. By my head, the sea's rising. The flood is upon us. Oh. Aslan be praised, this castle stands on high ground. But the water is coming on grimly fast. I'll tell you what it is. That witch has laid a train of magic spells so that whenever she was killed at that same moment, her whole kingdom would fall to pieces. She's the sort that wouldn't so much mind dying herself if she knew that whoever killed her was going to be burned or buried or drowned five minutes later. Hast hit it, friend Wiggle. Yes. When our swords hacked off the witch's head, that stroke ended all her magic works and now the deep lands are falling to pieces. We are looking on the end of Underworld. The end of Underworld? Uh, unless it should happen to be the end of the whole world. But are we going to just stay here and wait? Not by my counsel. I would save my horse, Coalblack, and the witch's horse, Snowflake, which are both stabled in the courtyard. After that, let us make shift to get out to high ground and pray that we shall find an outlet. The horses can carry two each at need, and if we put them to it, they may outstrip the flood. I don't like the look of those approaching gnomes. If you ask me, they're behaving less like a crowd and more like soldiers in an attack. Mm, I see what you mean. They're making rushes and taking cover. Yeah. They obviously don't want us to see them. Yes. Perhaps your highness should put on his armor. I dare not see the inside of that armor again. I rode in it as a movable dungeon, and it stinks of magic and slavery. But I will take my shield. Oh. What's wrong? An hour ago, my shield was black and without device. And now this. It is as bright as silver. And the figure of a red lion. Doubtless this signifies that Aslan will be our good lord, whether he means us to live or die. And all's one for that. Now, by my counsel, we shall all shake hands one with another, as true friends that may shortly be parted. Sooner than we think, I shouldn't wonder. Oh, so long, Jill. Sorry I've been so miserable to you. I hope you get safe home. So long, Eustace. And I'm sorry I've been such a pig. And now let us descend into the city and take the adventure that is sent us. Steady, Coldblack. That's it. Snowflake is saddled. My lady, if you and the Marshwiggle will ride Snowflake, Eustace and I will take Coldblack. <coughs> oh. 
Oh, it's a jolly good thing I took those riding lessons last summer. I agree. We must make our way into the streets carefully. I say, it's awfully good luck that those sentries have vanished. Not for long, I'm sure. Great Scott, look at that. Fireworks? Yes, but you can't imagine those earth people letting them off for fun. It must be a signal. And means no good to us, I'll be bound. Friends, when once a man is launched on such an adventure as this, he must bid farewell to hopes and fears. Otherwise death or deliverance will both come too late to save his honour and reason. Oh, the water is rising quickly. <laughs> Not much danger of being burnt then. That's the bright side of it. Courage! The road there goes down steeply. That water has climbed only half up the greatest hill in the city. It might come so near in the first half hour and come no nearer in the next two. We must get round the fire, if it is a fire, and on to high ground, then to the new diggings. Prince Rillian, do you see those earthmen? Where? Oh, they've gone into the shadows. I, I saw about six of them, with weapons of some sort, and, and they were large. We must keep vigilant watch. However, I'm convinced that any show of charging at them will send them scurrying away. When the travelers had climbed many steep streets and were far away from the flood and almost out of the town on the inland side, the situation became more serious. They were now close to the red glow and nearly on a level with it, though they couldn't see what it really was. But by its light, they could see their enemies more clearly. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of gnomes were all moving towards it but they were doing so in short rushes. And whenever they stopped, they turned and faced the travelers. If your highness asked me, I'd say those fellows were meaning to cut us off in the front. That was my thought too, Puddleglum. And we can never fight our way through so many. Hark you, let us ride forth close by the edge of yonder house. And even as we reach it, do you slip off into its shadow? The lady and I will go forward a few paces. Some of these devils will follow us, I doubt not. They are thick behind us. Do you who have long arms take one alive, if you may, as it passes your ambush? Yes, sir. We may get a true tale of it or learn what is their quarrel against us. But won't the others will come rushing at us to rescue the one we catch? Yes. Then, madam, you shall see us die fighting around you. And you must commend yourself to the lion. Now, good Puddleglum, off you go. Yes, your highness. <coughs> The marsh wiggle slipped into the shadow as quickly as a cat. The others, for a sickening minute or so, went forward at a walk. Then suddenly, from behind them, there broke out a series of blood-curdling screams. Oh, oh dear! Anyone would think it was a pig being killed! Don't cry out before you're hurt, or you will be hurt, see? Good hunting, Puddleglum. Eustace, of your courtesy, dismount and take Coldblack's head while I deal with this gnome. Yes, sir. Now, Earthman, speak up like an honest gnome and you shall go free. Play the knave with us and you shall feel the prick of my sword in your neck and nothing more after. Puddleglum, how can it speak while you hold its mouth tight shut? To keep it from biting me! Earthman, one bite and you die. Let its mouth open, Puddleglum. As you wish, eh? Let 
me go, let me go! It isn't me! I didn't do it! Didn't do what? Whatever your honor say I did! Tell me your name and what you Earthman are all about today. Oh, please, your honors, please, kind gentlemen, promise you will not tell the Queen's Grace anything I say. The Queen's Grace, as you call her, is dead. I killed her myself. What? Dead? The witch dead? And by your honor's hand? Oh, why then, your honor is a friend! Friend? You had better tell us all then. My name is Golg, and I will tell your honors all I know. About an hour ago, we were all going about our work. Her work, I should say. Sad and silent, same as we've done any other day for years and years. Then there came a great crash and bang. As soon as they heard it, everyone says to himself, I haven't had a song or a dance or, or let off a joke for a long time. Why is that? And everyone thinks to himself, why? I must have been enchanted. And then everyone says to himself, I'm blessed if I know why I'm carrying this load and I'm not going to carry it any further. That's that. And down we all throw our sacks and bundles and tools. And then everyone turns and sees the great red glow over yonder. And everyone says to himself, what's that? And everyone answers himself and says, there's a crack or a chasm split open and a nice warm glow coming up through it from the really deep land, a thousand fathom under us. Great Scott, are there other lands still lower down? Oh, yes, Your Honor. Lovely places, what we call the land of Bism. This country where we are now, the witch's country, is what we call the Shallow Lands. It's a good deal too near the surface to suit us. You might almost as well be living outside on the surface itself. You see, we're all poor gnomes from Bism, whom the witch has called up here by magic to work for her. But we'd forgotten all about it till that crash came and the spell broke. We didn't know who we were or where we belonged. We couldn't do anything or, or think anything except what she put into our heads. And it was glum and gloomy things she put there all those years. I've nearly forgotten how to make a joke or, or dance a jig. But the moment the bang came and the chasm opened and the sea began rising, it all came back. And of course, we all set off as quick as we could to get down the crack and home to our own place. And you can see them over there all letting off rockets and standing on their heads for joy. Oh, and I'll be very obliged to your honours if, if you'll soon let me go and join in. I think this is simply splendid. I'm so glad we freed the gnomes as well as ourselves when we cut off the witch's head. And I'm so glad they aren't really horrid and gloomy any more than the prince really was. Well, what he seemed like. That's all very well, Jill. But those gnomes didn't look to me like chaps who were just running away. Look more like military formations, if you ask me. Do you look me in the face, Mr. Gold, and tell me you weren't preparing for battle? Of course we were, Your Honour. Ah. You see, we didn't know the witch was dead. We thought she'd be watching from the castle. Oh. We were trying to slip away without being seen. And then when you three came out with swords and horses, of course, everyone says to himself, Oh, here it comes, not knowing that his honour wasn't on the witch's side. And we were determined to fight like anything rather than give up the hope of going back to Bism. I'll be sworn it is an honest gnome. Let go of it, Puddleglum. As for me, good Golg, I have been enchanted like you and your fellows, and have but newly remembered myself. And now, one question more. 
Do you know the way to those new diggings by which the sorceress meant to lead out an army against the Overland? Oh, oh yes, yes, I know that terrible road. I will show you where it begins, but it is no manner of use your honor asking me to go with you on it. I'll die, rather. Why? What's so dreadful about it? Oh, too near the top, the outside. That was the worst thing the witch did to us. We were going to be led out into the open, onto the outside of the world. They say there's no roof at all there, <laughs> only a horrible great emptiness called uh, the sky. And the diggings have gone so far that a few strokes of the pick would bring you out to it. Oh, I wouldn't dare go near them. Mm, now oh. you're talking. But it's not horrid at all up there. We like it. We live there. Oh, I know you overlanders live there, but I thought it was because you, you couldn't find your way down inside. You can't really like it? Crawling about like flies on the top of the world? Yes, 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 yes. What about showing us the road at once? The whole party set out. The prince remounted his charger, Puddleglum climbed up behind Jill, and Golg led the way. As he went, he kept shouting out the good news that the witch was dead, and that the four overlanders were not dangerous. And those who heard him shouted it on to others, so that in a few minutes, the whole of Underland was ringing with shouts and cheers. Gnomes, by the hundreds, came pressing round Coldblack and Snowflake, and the prince had to tell the story of his own enchantment and deliverance at least ten times. In this way they came to the edge of the chasm. It was about a thousand feet long and perhaps two hundred wide. They dismounted from their horses and came to the edge and looked down into it. A strong heat smote up into their faces. The depth of the chasm was so bright that at first it dazzled their eyes and they could see nothing. When they got used to it, they thought they could make out a river of fire. And on the banks of that river, what seemed to be fields and groves of an unbearable, hot brilliance. There were blues and reds and greens and whites all jumbled together. Down the rugged side of the chasm, looking black like flies against all that fiery light, hundreds of earthmen were climbing down. Your honors, why don't you come down to Bism? You'd be happier there than in that cold, unprotected, naked country out on top. Or at least come down for a short visit. Truly, friend, I have half a mind to come with you. For this is a marvelous adventure, and it may be no mortal man has ever looked into Bism before or will ever have the chance again. And I know not how, as the years pass, I shall bear to remember that it was once in my power to have probed the uttermost pit of the earth, and that I did not. Your Highness, if my old friend Reepicheep the Mouse were here, he would say we could not now refuse the adventures of Bism without a great impeachment to our honor. You still. My father went to the world's end. It would be a marvelous thing if his son went to the bottom of the world. Wait a minute! If your highness wants to see your father while he's still alive, which I think he'd prefer, it's about time we were getting onto that road to the diggings! And I won't go down that hole, whatever anyone says! Why, if your honours are really set to go back to Overworld, there is one bit of the road that's rather lower than this. And perhaps, if that flood's still rising... Oh, do come on! I fear it must be so. 
But I have left half of my heart in the land of Bizarre. Please! Where is the road? There are lamps all the way. Your honor can see the beginning of the road on the far side of the chasm. Oh, 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 I must hurry. The rift looks as if it's closing. Quick! Goodbye to your honors. I'm off. Now it's ten to one, we've already stayed too long, but we may as well make a try. Those lamps will go out in five minutes, I shouldn't wonder. On coal black. Snowflake, haste. Haste! <laughs> The four travelers followed the lamps into a valley, then across a rapidly rising river, and then uphill again. When they looked back, they could see the water spreading. All the hills of the underland were now islands, and it was only on those islands that lamps remained. Every moment, some distant light vanished. Soon there would be total darkness everywhere, except on the road they were following. We must give the horses a rest. Yes, Your Highness. Ooh, ooh. But I would suggest only a brief rest. The lamps on the road ahead are looking a bit sickly, don't you think? Greener. You don't mean to say they're going out? Well, however they work, you can't expect them to last forever. But don't let your spirits down, Eustace. I've got my eye on the water too, and I don't think it's rising as fast as it did. Small comfort, friend. If we cannot find our way out, I cry you mercy all. I am to blame for my pride and fantasy which delayed us by the mouth of the land of Bism. Now, let us ride on. Yes. Yep. During the hour or so that followed, the lamps did grow dimmer and the land changed. The roof of Underland and the very walls came closer and narrowed. The road in fact, was leading them up into a steep tunnel. They began to pass picks and shovels and barrows and other signs that the diggers had recently been at work. At last, the roof was so low that Puddleglum and the prince knocked their heads against it. Dismount. The lights are going out behind us. Not only behind us, one light, the next one ahead, went out altogether. The one behind them did the same. They were in absolute darkness. Courage, friends. Whether we live or die, Aslan will be our good lord. That's right, sir. And you must always remember there's one good thing about being trapped down here. It'll save funeral expenses. We might as well go on and stand here. Puddleglum and Eustace went first with their arms outstretched in front of them. Jill and the prince followed, leading the horses. Much later, Puddleglum said, Oh, stop! I'm up against a dead end. And it's earth, not rock. Oh, oh I say. Are my eyes going strange, or is there a patch of light up there at the top of the wall? Why, the lion, Eustace is right. Mm. There is a sort of... But it's not daylight. It's only a cold blue sort of light. Mm. Better than nothing, though. Can we get up to it? Mm. 
How would it be, Jill, if you got on my shoulders and saw whether you could reach it? I'll try. You needn't put your finger in my eye. Sorry. Nor your foot in my mouth, either. Oh, sorry. Sorry. That's more like it. Now, I'll hold on to your legs. That'll leave your arms free to steady yourself against the earth. Can you see anything? It's a hole. I could get through it if I was a little bit higher. higher? What do you see through it? Nothing much yet. I say, Puddle Glum, <laughs> let go of my legs so that I can stand on your shoulders. I can steady myself all right against the edge. If you insist, ah! <laughs> I say, I can see something. Oh, that blue light is... Whoa. Oh, what on earth? What's happening? Whoa! Quick! Ah, hold on to her legs! I'm losing her! Oh. Someone must be pulling her from the other side! Oh. There! There! Oh. Ah. Ah. Too late! Jill! 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 Jill. Oh, Puddle Glum, why the dickens couldn't you have held her feet? Oh, I don't know, Eustace. Born to be a misfit, I shouldn't wonder. Fated. Fated to be Jill's death, just as I was fated to eat talking stag at Harfang. Not that it isn't my own fault as well, of course. This is the greatest shame and sorrow that could have fallen on us. We have sent a brave lady into the hands of enemies and stayed behind in safety. Safety? Don't paint it too black, sir. We're not very safe except for death by starvation in this hole. Thank you, Puddle Glum. Oh. What has become of Jill? What's the idea of hitting me in the face with a snowball? We always throw snowballs as part of the great snow dance. Yes. Where did you come from? I came from... Oh, my! You're a... A girl! A, a daughter of Eve, if I may say so. Yes, I am. A daughter of Eve? Here? In the middle of the woods? Look, I came from that hole up there, in the side of that hill. Hole? I never noticed no hole before. Do we have to start the great snow dance over again? If so, we'll have to make more snowballs. Yeah. Listen to me, all of you. Is this Narnia? Narnia? Where else but Narnia would we gather for the great snow dance? <laughs> You're welcome to join us, of course. Musicians! Musicians, prepare! Please, please, stop talking! We've no time to lose! We're buried in the hill. I mean, they're buried in the hill. We have to dig them out. Them? What could she be talking about? I was in the hole that leads into that hill over there. I was about to call for you when I was suddenly hit in the face with a snowball. Oh, well, yeah, that was my fault. I, I misjudged me throw. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but when I lifted my hands to wipe my face, I fell out of the hole and slid down here. But we have to go back and dig the others out. There are three besides the horses. And one of them is Prince Rillian. Rillian? <gasps> But, 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 but that's impossible. It's not. He's there. Right, picks and shovels. Off for our tools. Picks and shovels. Come on. 
Wake up some of the moles. There are the chaps for the digging. Nearly as good as dwarfs, they are. What was that she said about Prince Rillian? The poor child's crazed. And no wonder if she was lost inside the hill. She doesn't know what she's saying. Imagine saying that Prince Rillian was a horse. No, no, no. Not a horse. Oh, it's so cold. Oh, here's a coat for you. You can't expect not to get cold when you wander the woods in the wintertime, particularly in the middle of the night. Papapore, bring the daughter of Eva hot drink. And here come the dwarves with their spades and pickaxes. We'll get to the bottom of this in no time. Get to the bottom of dig them out. Stop moving about, Puddle Glum. You may not be much taller than the girl, but you're certainly heavier. Can you see anything, Eustace? Um, I see a blue light. Uh, I can't make it out. Uh, um, but uh, swords to the ready. I see a crowd of a uh, of someone's coming towards us. I think they're armed. Get back! Back! Or know the taste of my steel! What are you doing, young'un? Put the sword down. We're here to rescue you. What? Eustace, put down your sword. They're dwarfs. Yeah. Friends. <laughs> dwarfs? Yes, we've come up in Narnia. Everything's all right. Narnia! Does this mean you'll get down off my shoulders now? <gasps> Glum, isn't it? From the Eastern Marshes. One and the same. <laughs> what, whatever have you been doing? There have been search parties out for you. The Lord Trumpkin has been putting up notices. There's a reward offered. A reward? Not a very large one, I shouldn't wonder. A moment, please! Please! Please, a moment! Please. I, I don't believe there is a single one here, fawn, dwarf, animal or dryad, who can look upon this young man and not recognise him. Pale and weary as he is, there is that look in his face, as in the face of all true kings of Narnia, who rule by the will of Aslan and sit at Ker Paravel on the throne of Peter, the High King. Now, bear your heads and bend your knees, one and all, to the son of Caspian X, Prince Rillian! Jill, was it worth all the pains it cost us to get him here? Yes, Eustace, it was. <laughs> After a warm meal and a good night's sleep in a dwarf's cave, Jill woke the next morning to the news that Prince Rillian had already gone on to meet his father's ship at Care Paravel. Two centaurs had been commissioned to give Jill and Eustace a ride to join him there. Of course, you realise it is a most special and unheard of honour to be allowed to ride a centaur. I don't know that I ever heard of anyone doing it before. But how could the prince meet the king if he's at sea? Mm. It seems the king met Aslan, 
I don't know whether it was in a vision or face to face, before he had sailed far. And Aslan turned him back and told him he would find his long-lost son awaiting him when he reached Narnia. Paddleglam was told to stay in bed. A centaur called Cloudbirth, a famous healer, was coming to see to his burnt foot. Uh, he'll want to have the leg off at the knee, I shouldn't wonder. You see if he doesn't. Goodbye, dear Puddleglum. I'm sorry I thought you were a wet blanket. <laughs> so am I. You've been the best friend in the world. And I do hope we'll meet again. Not much chance of that, I should say. I don't reckon I'm very likely to see my old wigwam again either. <laughs> that prince, he's a nice chap, but do you think he's very strong? <laughs> Constitution ruined with living underground, I shouldn't wonder. Looks the sort that might go off any day. Puddleglum, you're a regular old humbug. Mm? You sound as doleful as a funeral, and I believe you're perfectly happy. <laughs> and you talk as if you're afraid of everything, when you're really as brave as... as a lion. Oh. Goodbye. Mwah. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. 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 Well... I wouldn't have dreamt of her kissing me, even though I am a good-looking chap. To ride on a centaur is no doubt a great honor, but it is very uncomfortable. For no one who valued his life would suggest putting a saddle on a centaur. And riding bareback is no fun, especially if, like Eustace, you've never learned to ride at all. But however sore and jolted the two humans were, they would now give anything to have that journey over again, to see the glades and slopes sparkling with the snow, to be met by rabbits and squirrels and birds that wished you good morning, to breathe again the air of Narnia, and hear the voices of the Narnian trees. At the very moment of their arrival at Care Paravel itself, they saw the same bright ship which they'd seen when they first set foot in Narnia, gliding up the river like a huge bird. All the court were once more assembled on the green between the castle and the quay to welcome King Caspian home again. Rillian, who had changed his black clothes and was now dressed in a scarlet cloak over silver mail, stood close to the water's edge to receive his father. Dwarf Trumpkin sat beside him in his little donkey chair. The centaurs agreed to allow the children to sit on their backs so they could see over the heads of the courtiers. The king's galleon came alongside, and the gangway was brought up to the ship. But King Caspian did not come as they had expected, happily on foot, to greet his son. Four knights carried the old king on a bed. He was very pale and still. They set him down next to Prince Rillian where the two embraced. Then King Caspian raised his hand to bless his son. My dear son. Father, 
Everyone cheered, but it was a half-hearted cheer, for they all felt that something was going wrong. Then suddenly the king's head fell back upon his pillows. The musicians stopped, Father. and there was silence. The prince, kneeling by the king's bed, laid down his head upon it and wept. What's happened, Eustace? Quiet, Jill. The king is dead. Oh, no. I wish I was at home now. Me too. Eustace and Jill turned and saw the lion himself. So bright and real and strong that everything else at once began to look pale and shadowy compared with him. And in less time than it takes to breathe, Jill forgot about the dead king of Narnia and remembered only how she'd made Eustace fall over the cliff and how she'd helped to muff nearly all the signs and about all the snappings and quarrelings. And she wanted to say, I'm sorry, but she couldn't speak. Then the lion drew them towards him with his eyes and bent down and touched their pale faces with his tongue. Think of that no more. I will not always be scolding. You have done the work for which I sent you into Narnia. Please, Aslan. May we go home now? Yes! Uh, I have come to bring you home. <laughs> then he opened his mouth wide and blew. But this time they had no sense of flying through the air. Instead, it seemed that they remained still, and the wild breath of Aslan blew away the ship, and the dead king, and the castle, and the snow, and the winter sky. For all these things floated off into the air like wreaths of smoke, and suddenly they were standing in a great brightness of midsummer sunshine, on smooth turf, among mighty trees, and beside a fair, fresh stream. Then they saw that they were once more on the mountain of Aslan, high above and beyond the end of the world in which Narnia lies. But the strange thing was that the funeral music for King Caspian went on, though no one could tell where it came from. They were walking beside a stream and the lion went before them, and he became so beautiful, and the music so despairing, that Jill didn't know which of them it was that filled her eyes with tears. Then Aslan stopped, and the children looked into the stream. There, on the golden gravel of the bed of the stream, lay King Caspian, dead with the water flowing over him like liquid glass.
His long white beard swayed in it like water weed. And all three stood and wept. Even the lion wept, great lion tears. Each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was a single solid diamond. And you'll notice that Eustace looked neither like a child crying, nor like a boy crying and wanting to hide it, but like a grown-up crying. Son of Adam, go into that thicket and pluck the thorn that you will find there and bring it to me. Yes, Aslan. Eustace returned a moment later. The thorn was a foot long and sharp as a sword. Drive it into my paw, son of Adam. Uh, must I? Yes. Then Eustace set his teeth and drove the thorn into the lion's paw. And there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all redness you've ever seen or imagined. And it splashed into the stream over the dead body of the king. At the same moment, the doleful music stopped and the dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray, and from gray to yellow, and got shorter and vanished altogether, and his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh, and the wrinkles were smooth, and his eyes opened, and his eyes and lips both laughed, and suddenly he leapt up and stood before them. <laughs> A very young man. <laughs> Aslan! He flung his arms as far as they would go round Aslan's huge neck. And he gave Aslan the strong kisses of a king. And Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lion. At last, Caspian turned to the others. Eustace! Why, Eustace! So you did reach the end of the world after all. <laughs> oh, what about my second best sword that you broke on the sea serpent, eh? <laughs> oh, but, but look here, Caspian. I say, I mean, it's all very well seeing you again. But aren't you... I mean, didn't you die? Yes. He has died. Most people have, you know. Even I have. There are very few who haven't. I see what's bothering you. You think I'm a ghost or some nonsense. But don't you see? I would be that if I appeared in Narnia now, because I don't belong there anymore. But one can't be a ghost in one's own country. Then, does that mean we're also...? No, my dears. When you meet me here again, mm. you will have come to stay. Oh. But not now. You must go back to your own world for a while. Oh. Sir, mm. I've always wanted to have just one glimpse of their world. 
is that wrong? You cannot want wrong things anymore now that you have died, oh. my son. And you shall see their world oh. for five minutes of their time. It will take no longer for you to set things right there. I understand. Set things right, Aslan? Draw your swords, sons of Adam. But use only the flat, for it is cowards and children, not warriors against whom I send you. Ah, you're talking about the bullies at school. Daughter. Pluck a switch off that bush. Yes, Aslan. Why? It feels like a riding crop. It is a riding crop. Come. You're coming with us, Aslan. They shall see only my back. He led them rapidly through the wood. And before they'd gone many paces, the wall of the school appeared before them. Then Aslan roared so that the sun shook in the sky, and 30 feet of the wall fell down before them. They looked through the gap, down into the school shrubbery, and onto the roof of the gym, all under the same dull autumn sky which they'd seen before their adventures began. Aslan turned to Jill and Eustace and breathed upon them and touched their foreheads with his tongue. Then he lay down amid the gap he'd made in the wall and turned his golden back to England and his lordly face towards his own land. At the same moment, Jill saw figures whom she knew only too well running up through the laurels towards them. Most of the gang of bullies were there, but suddenly they stopped. Their faces changed, and all the meanness, conceit, cruelty, and sneakishness almost disappeared in one single expression of terror. For they saw the wall fallen down, and a lion as large as a young elephant lying in the gap and three figures in glittering clothes with weapons in their hands rushing down upon them. For with the strength of Aslan in them, Jill plied her crop on the girls, and Caspian and Eustace plied the flats of their swords on the boys so well that in two minutes all the bullies were running like mad. And then the headmistress came running out to see what was happening. And when she saw the lion in the broken wall, and Caspian and Jill and Eustace, she panicked and phoned the police with stories about a lion escaped from a circus and escaped convicts with swords. In the midst of all this fuss, Jill and Eustace said goodbye to Caspian and slipped quietly indoors and changed out of their Narnian clothes into ordinary things. And the wall, at Aslan's word, was made whole again. When the police arrived and found no lion, no broken wall and no convicts, and the headmistress behaving like a lunatic, a formal inquiry was set up. And then the truth about the school came out, and the headmistress was fired, and the bullies were reprimanded or expelled, and it became quite a good school. 
But far off in Narnia, King Rillian buried his father, Caspian the Navigator, tenth of that name, and mourned for him. He himself ruled Narnia well, and the land was happy in his days. Though Puddleglum often pointed out that bright mornings bring on wet afternoons, I shouldn't wonder. You can't expect good times to last. It may be interesting to note that the scene in which Puddleglum puts out the Green Lady's fire with his own foot caused some problems for Jack Lewis. Apparently Jack had written it as a wood fire, but his good friend Roger Lancelin Green, also a children's author, pointed out that wood keeps on glowing even after it's been extinguished. Jack then tried to decide whether or not to make it peat in a flat hearth, but he couldn't remember if even peat would go out easily by treading. He wrote, as an Irishman I ought to know, but don't. He finally decided to make it a coal fire and a flat hearth, since the creatures of Underland might well use coal, whereas wood or charcoal would have to be imported. As it turned out, Jack decided to hedge his bets and described it only as a fire which Puddleglum stamped into ashes. By the way, as a side note, it was Roger Lancelin Green who ultimately suggested calling the entire series The Chronicles of Narnia. Jack couldn't resist a little bonus in the silver chair's happy ending, with the reappearance of a younger Prince Caspian and the fulfilment of his wish to see Eustace's world, which he'd made in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it was in keeping with Jack's disdain of the new schools at the time, which seemed to indulge students and be without discipline, that Prince Caspian joined Eustace and Jill in a playful revenge against the bullies and the headmistress. Though it was written after The Horse and His Boy, it was released before that book, and in its chronological place in the series is the handoff to the seventh and a final story called The Last Battle. The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis was dramatized and directed by Paul McCusker. Sound designed by Todd Bastide. Music was composed and orchestrated by John Campbell. Our producer was Dave Arnold. Our cast included Paul Schofield as the storyteller, David Suchet as Aslan, Ron Moody as Puddleglum, Stephen Webb as Eustace, and Jade Williams as Jill. Our cast also included the multi-voiced talents of Stephen Aintree, Robert Benfield, Nick Burnell, Chris Emmett, Jessica Fox, Katie Glassborough, Jamie Glover, Peter Goodright, Michael Hockey, Nathaniel Lippiat, Tom Maggs, Polly March, Gary Martin, Joanna Myers, Derek Nimmo, David Oakley, Audrey Palmer, Daniel Philpott, Joe Shaw, Philip Sherlock, Mervyn Stutter, Simon Treves and Zoe Verner. Focus on the Family Radio Theatre is a production of Focus on the Family, and I'm your host, Douglas Gresham. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast.